1: August fifteenth, 1975, uh, when I walked into a meeting, and uh, I'd been invited to go to that meeting before. It was out in Santa Monica, California, and uh, Dennis uh, T. Uh, had tried to get me to go a couple times before, but this time I said yes. I was walking in circles in my apartment, kind of mumbling to myself, and the refrigerator was singing to me, and uh, I don't know if I had that happen to them or not. Well, somebody said alcohol is the only liquid that sinks, <laughs> and uh I was hallucinating, I was drunk at my first meeting, and have not had to have a drink of alcohol since because of God, not because of me, certainly. I've tried to quit all my life since I was a teenager, I tried to quit drinking forever. I went to jail a lot of times, I always went to, just weekends generally, but I always said I'll quit forever, but it didn't work. And that really worked for me, and I to thank God for that. So that's my qualification for being here. Uh, I have several things to say before we get started. Before we start, I'd like everybody in the room to have one of these and one of these. I asked Brian to get us a hander out person. he said he assigned assign somebody to do that. So if you do that, please, and I uh, appreciate that.
2: And, uh,
1: thank you. Okay. Take more than one if you like one, or you have a friend that wants one. There's a lot of of extras there. One is kind of like a a history of AAs on the back, a very brief history, and then there's how things went together, kind of shows on that. On one side of this, you will see, once you get it in your hand, the side that has the numbers is the pre-AA history. This is what happened before AA started. And the other side is after AA started, so you've got two sides there to it. There's a lot, a lot of information on that, uh, written very briefly and sparsely uh, for you. The second announcement I have is this. Uh, I became an archives person 20, 25 years ago, a long time ago. I've been very interested in the history of AA. Um, some of us get into history of AA, we, we try to encourage other people to be interested in our in, in how AA started and so on like that, and because we think in our history lies our hope. And our hope is really right in our history. If they all got drunk back in those days, we wouldn't be here today. If they wouldn't have had a program of action, we wouldn't know what it is, we wouldn't be here today. And not only are those people back there, uh, AA history and archives,
2: you people are also AA history.
1: You're, you need to be here for the people who are not even born yet
2: who will be here 20, 30 years from now.
1: And so, it isn't just about back then, it's also about now, the history, turns out to be. And uh, one thing was done, and uh, some people... Do all kind of things. Get, they make recordings and uh, and also um, write books. I'll talk about recordings first. This stuff is all free, by the way. I don't sell anything for a uh, for money. Uh, this is called Dawn of Hope." It's put out by Dr. Bob House, and uh, so somebody who would like to have this to play at their meeting. It's 30 minutes long, so when you have an AA meeting, you can play it for 30 minutes and discuss it for 30 minutes. Get everybody interested in history. I've just got a few of those. Somebody want to do that, and I've got one for Brian, for sure, for this meeting because he invited me here, but I've got a couple others. So if you want one during the break, let me know. And if you can t- play it at a meeting, please do. If you just want to take it for yourself and listen to it, uh, maybe we'll make you another one later on or something. I want this to go to meetings where people will be listening to it. Uh, that's the reason why we make these things, uh, and uh, so the other thing to keep people get people interested in some us write books. Well, I write books too. I write history books. I put the history of uh, of Richmond, Indiana, long took about 15 minutes to get this big and that big and that big, and so we got it written. Finally, it took about many many years to get it written, and uh, then I got started. And so I started. I wrote a, a history of Indianapolis. Uh, if you're a history-minded person, be careful. It's very dangerous to take pictures. I went to Indianapolis, and I just took some pictures of the old buildings over in Indianapolis that had to do with AA. And uh, so I took them home. I was very satisfied with those pictures. But there's one problem with those pictures. Every one of those pictures had a big question mark on it. And I had to go back to Indianapolis and find that out. And, uh, next, 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 next. And, uh, I had a whole book. It took all summer to do it. But I got a history book of, of Indianapolis. Well, after that, this has—I didn't bring that with me because most people here wouldn't be interested in Indianapolis. But uh, there's the next book I wrote a few years ago, a pre-AA history book. This is, this is the, the 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 nine years before AA started. What happened? It's not like way back in time. It's just a, its compressed in a very short period of time, and uh, so I wrote that. And then, just recently, I wrote this Ebby in Exile, a uh, vital AA link. It shows how Ebby getting kicked out of his hometown caused Alcoholics Anonymous to happen. Cause that, he wouldn't have been kicked out of his hometown. AA wouldn't be, he's a vital link, an important link. And, uh, in the time, thousands of these books have gone out. I like to say it this way. I've sold thousands, thousands of these books. That's good news. But the bad news is I didn't make any money. (laughs) And the reason I didn't make any money is because I sell them for free. (laughs) And so, any of you want one of these books or two of them, I'll give you. I'll send you both of them through the email. You can print it up yourself on your computer or just leave it on your on your on your PC for reference. And so, I brought this with me. This pen is mine, by the way. (laughs) And (laughs) I'm going to pass this around. And everybody, please be very careful how you write, because out of a out of ten names, I'll get two uh, two emails wrong because I uh, think an I eyes a one or whatever. I'll get mixed up. So be very careful if you do that. I'll pass this around and uh, I'll be glad to send you one uh, emails. So you have multiple books or other things if you like. You, know, you might want a, a, a,
2: a Dawn of Hope. Maybe I can get you one of those. And that'd be a special order, not on there. But let me know. And, and, uh, kind of...
1: The commercial beginning part of the reading, and uh, so uh, that's the commercials. Somebody said when they read the uh, chapter, the, the Ninth Step Promise, that's the commercials. I don't know if that's right or not. <laughs> that certainly makes you enthused about AA, doesn't it? I mean,
2: oh, That's good.
1: Okay, as I say, a little bit about me and how we're getting into the history of it. I am Bob Stonebreaker, member of the Fourth Dimension Group of Richmond, Indiana, which is slowly not there right now, but it went for 25 years. And how that's it's called the Fourth Dimension Group. That's mentioned twice in the Big Book, by the way, page eight, page 25. But we read that. But uh, yet, what happened was, I was about it was 1985. I was about nine nine years sober 10 years sober, and I was down in Palm Beach, Florida. And, uh, just down there in the general area. And, uh, I went to a meeting and a guy named Dell, he's gone now, so his last name, Heckendorf, great big old tough guy, he's a football player, he's a football player. He was talking to somebody about the Big Book. And I said, uh, I I just started telling him what I thought I knew about the Big Book. He said, listen to you. He's about that tall. (laughs) He said, you shut your mouth or you get out the door. And I'll tell you, he didn't say it that way either. Thank God I had enough to listen, and I learned and I learned and I learned. I'm going to tell you what they did. Just a little off a of history, but it's important because it's very unusual, but not it was not too unusually older days of alcoholicism. get into history, and you, you see how uh, 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 Dr. Bott took Earl treat through the, uh, through, through the steps in a few hours. they're on page two sixty three of your of your uh, fourth edition books, but anyway. They'd invite newcomers to breakfast, two or three of them, nice. Buy them breakfast. Then they'd take them down a couple blocks down the road there. There was a, there was a real estate office that's vacant. And they'd sit there and they'd talk. These, these three or five, about ten people converge, maybe twelve, on these two or three newcomers. And they'd talk about steps one and two. And they have the newcomers pray the third step prayer. And lo and behold, they'd sit them down and have them start writing step four, just like that. Huh. And they get done doing that. They get a pizza pie. They eat a pizza. And then they separate those, those guys and send them to little cubbyhole rooms and, and do steps five, six, and seven with them individually. And back to the main table, do eight and nine. And by midnight or one o'clock in the morning, they're at ten, eleven, 11, and 12. And the uh, groups are around saying, well, that's not going to work. They uh, they booed that, but before long, they are sending a hard cases to to us down in the fourth dimension group. I joined that group. So I started so I I started, that's a good idea. Some years later, a couple of years later, I'm out in California, and I started doing the same thing out there except not that fast, a couple of days in the steps. And I still take a couple of days doing this. Clarence Snyder just two days into the steps. And we grew, first thing you know, we had four minis out there. I came back to Richmond, Indiana, and uh, Ron P., some of you probably know who he is, He he, uh, he came over to Richmond, spent a year and a half with us learning what we do, and, uh, it's not a real popular kind of a lifestyle for a meeting, because our meeting, there's uh, no experience, strength, and hope. Uh, you have all the opinions you want, but you can't discuss them until the meeting's over with. And uh, and you listen. You know, it's like studying algebra. The teacher teaches, and you listen. That's what it was like. And a lot of people learned a lot. And uh, most alcoholics don't want to get taught. Don't you teach me. I'll figure it out myself. And uh, that's okay. But some did. And next thing you know, Ron goes to Dayton. He starts one there, and we got about eight meetings all around Dayton. It's Still going. They're not all called fourth dimension, but they use our format, they use our big chart, and all kinds of stuff like that. And then to keep it short, uh, the internet helps out. We got well, we got some in St. Louis. Got Indianapolis. Gone 15 years now, and uh, we got uh, uh, meetings in the UK over over uh, United Kingdom. We got them in Canada. We got them. We had one in Switzerland for a while, and uh just all around. We've got them all over the place. We've got three, about 30 of these kind of teaching meetings using our format. We don't all do it the same way. I mean, most people, but, but that's kind of what got me started. And in the middle of all this stuff, I started being an archives guy, and I got interested. And I thought, well... uh I've got we got a nice display. I'm lucky. Some of you might have known uh, Tom R. Tom Ross is his name. He's gone now. He died was 55 years sober. He's up in Greenville, Ohio. Does anybody here know him? He died about six, seven years ago. I mean, anyway, he uh, he gave me a tables and stuff. I got five tables of archives. I'm going to show them off. Wonderful. A, they're not all relevant, but uh, so he he told me all that stuff. And I got more interested in the History. And so I started reading different books. I joined something called, you can write this down if you like. You've got something to write on. I've got a lot of things to say you might want to write, so you can write on any of this paperwork I got somewhere. And uh, if you want another, there's extra anyway. Uh, write uh, AA History Lovers website. That's a wonderful history website. Got all the people write the AA books on it. Mel Barger's on there, and Arthur Sheehan's on there, and, and uh, Kurtz, Ernie Kurtz is on there, and all these people that you know write on that stuff. It's very, very good. It's, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, they have a they, they don't give their opinion about things, it's all uh, they, it, fact and they bibliography with it, so you know where it comes from. They didn't just say it because they think it, they, they said it because they tell what book they've got it from. It might be right, it might be wrong to argue about it, but yet it comes from somewhere. And so, I got into that,
2: and, uh,
1: with the archives, and besides, and so, uh, one of the first books I, I read was, uh, was AA Comes of Age, and then it was Dr. Bob and a Good Old Timers. And these books here, this was written in 1980, and like AA comes of age, kind of like a documentary book. This is like a like a story As is this one here, this is about Dr. Bob, obviously. This is about Bill Wilson, also a storybook. book. Both are very interesting both good history.
2: And uh, if you want to get started in AA, of history. These are two books I suggest to read right
1: right to begin with. I'm uh, here before I forget it. You probably all know this. This is a $12 book. Your district might have one already. And this is a
2: to GSO on the original big book. So, You can for
1: $12. Getting started directly on the history. Let's talk about here. First, you know, open your, you know, the number one here on your a, pre-A history synopsis. We'll talk about Roland Hazard. Before I talk about Roland, I'm going to pass this around. Who's who my passer outer person? person. This here is William James. He wrote varieties of religious experience. He, you're going to find out I won't mention much more in the, in this, but he had to do when Bill Wilson had a vital spiritual experience. He read that. and also he has a lot to do with uh, with with step two of our of our of our twelve steps. And you can figure it out on your own if you realize what that book's about and all like that. But Roland Hazard was from a very wealthy family. they came over to to uh, Rhode Island which wasn't even called it at the time, I suppose, but it was, his family, goes, his early family goes back, way back to, just after the Mayflower, and so they go way back to the 1600s, to so an old country, old, old family, they raised sheep, they became in the woolen industry, and as the time went on, they learned how to dye the wool, and they got interested in chemicals, and now they became part of Allied Allied Chemical, which is worth like eighteen billion dollars a few years ago, I mean uh, of course they're all gone now, but that's that that's that's the kind of family they were. They had millions of dollars, very wealthy, big estates, more than one all around and Roland was a very, very wealthy guy, and so thats that's important to know about him.
2: Uh, he uh
1: will talk about him in just a little bit now he's on page twenty seven of the big book. he's the guy Carl Jung was talking to. Uh, a businessman there, and that. And, uh, so, he couldn't stay sober. That was his problem. And, uh, he didn't know what to do about it. But his brother had some kind of emotional problem, no matter what it is. But he went over to see Dr. Carl Jung. A famous psychiatrist over in Zurich, Switzerland, and his brother said, "Why don't you go visit with him?" And so he he did in 1926. The stock story is, is 1931, which isn't right, I think. This is 1926 was the first visit. There might have been one in 1928, and also another one in in, in, in 1931. But this is a this is who he came to see if Carl Jung could fix him. And uh, so I pass this around. Passer out of persons. This goes on through the whole meeting. Just continue on. And uh, this, now I'm going to tell you the false. Some of you probably know about. It. You heard this already. That that uh, he thought about visiting uh, the, 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 the what's your name, uh, the uh, Sigmund Freud and Alfred. These two other more famous psychiatrists in the world, but somehow they couldn't work with him. And they were both more halfway atheists. And so we always lament that Bill wouldn't, I mean, that that Roland wouldn't have heard about a spiritual spirit had he gone to them. So goes the story. You've probably heard that. Some of you maybe haven't. Uh, it's been discounted. I don't believe it. Most historians don't believe it happened. We believe he went directly to Carl Jung. Here's these pictures here. And here's a picture of Carl Jung, young and older. If you're interested in that. Who's got the big book with it? Like to read. Anybody? Do you read real loud? You you can you're closer. You, you read? Page uh, let's go to page twenty seven. And uh, on page twenty six we got Carl Jung visiting the doctor. He can't stay sober for nothing. He tries, he wants to get drunk, you know, he's been in twenty six, he, he can't do any good. Now it's nineteen thirty one when this event here takes place. I believe it did take this event takes place, maybe his third visit with the doctor. And would you read from the um, first full paragraph of page twenty-seven?
0: Yeah. How far do you want me to read? Right. I'll tell you when to stop. Right. Some of our alcoholic readers may think they can do without spiritual help. The <coughs> conversation a friend had with his doctor. The doctor said, "You have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I have never seen one single case recovery where that state of mind existed to the extent of those who give." Our friend thought as though the gaze called had closed on with the a client. He said to the doctor, Is there no exception? Yes, replied the doctor, there is. Exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring
2: since early times. Here
1: and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. Boom! There's there, there's 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 there a solution to alcoholism. Nobody knew that before in the general run. of course, preachers have been talking about it, but yet that that's a that that, that comes to us today that he said that how important go ahead
2: to me
0: these occurrences are phenomenal they appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements ideas emotions and attitudes once the guiding forces of the lives of these men are suddenly cast one side mm-hmm. and a completely
1: set of new new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them period oh okay, thank you that's good Ideas, emotions, and attitudes are suddenly cast aside and a brand new set of ideas, emotions attitudes take over. And how do you remember that? How many people saw The Wizard of Oz? Okay. okay. Who was the first person she ran into uh, along the uh, yellow, brick road? Here. There. What's going here? No brand ideas. Red.
2: Okay. Who's
1: the next person it was? Ten, Ten, Ten men. Ten had no heart, couldn't feel no emotions, sake, no emotion. It so was the next one. He Carried Lion, you know. He couldn't act, he couldn't do nothing, see. So so ideas, emotions, and attitude, you think of that. And when was the big book written? 39. When 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 did the Wizard of Oz come out?
2: 39
1: nine two. eh? Yeah, okay. So <coughs> well, somebody jokingly said maybe uh, Bill Wilson
2: uh, uh, wrote the big book after the Wizard of Oz. Maybe it came first.
1: And it's something real important here, I think, for all of us. He says, in fact, I've been trying to produce some such emotional rearrangement in you. With many individuals, the method I employed is successful, but I've never been successful with an alcoholic of your description. I believe that is true today. I've talked to all kinds of people, going to psychiatrists and different things and all kinds of smart guys and, you see, and I think a lot of people go there and they get sober and never drink again, but maybe, maybe they're the alcoholic of the, uh, of, of the hard, hard drinker Bill talks about. They, they're people who can use self-will and self-knowledge and maybe a little bit of adjustment my they, they get by fine. There aren't just people. We all know them, you know. But a real alcoholic, somebody, that's somebody who cannot use self-will and cannot use self-knowledge. They're sunk. And I think we have to have a power greater than ourselves to fix ourselves. So it says self cannot rid self of self with self. So obviously you've got to have a power greater than self, whatever that is, but there's something out there that's fixing all these people. We had two people today back in 1935, and now we got two million. Something's going on pretty good. And there's power. Most of them say well, that power is what helped them. So that's the idea of, uh, of uh, that maybe psychological good and all that. But for uh, somebody, your description, that is to say, a real alcoholic, we need something power greater than ourselves to fix it. And that seems to hold true today. Somehow, Roland goes back to New York, and he's got to find some kind of a way to get uh, one of those vital spiritual experiences. In those days, the Oxford group was really big. It was just going all over the place. They had high 15,000 people at one of their big get-togethers and stuff like that, known around the world. They were not a particular religion, they weren't even really a religion at all. They were uh, a group of people who might be the most the mostly was were were, were Presbyterians, Methodists, and stuff like that, and they they were they were Protestants, and uh, mostly not not any Catholics were there at that time. but they talk about what they thought they they, they, they actually the name of the thing was first century Christian Fellowship was the name of this outfit. When when he got there, but at one time they changed uh, changed the name. As a matter of fact, when he got there, it was called the Oxford Group at the time. They changed. <clears> There's <throat> something to remember about the Oxford Group. <clears throat> it changed from First Century Christian Fellowship to the Oxford Group because these were all rich people. They they were not interested in fixing drunks at all or individuals so much at all. They want to fix the whole world. They want to fix countries at a time. And, uh, and they're going to change the whole world. If everybody the precepts of Jesus Christ, then they would think there'd be much less crime, there'd be less wars, poverty might go away, etc. Good things are going to happen to the world, so they're going to change the whole world. They've got lofty ideas. And they're rich, and they're in Africa, and they've got their own train. on a. They're riding on this train, and of uh, course they've got their own car. They don't set everybody else in. So one somebody said, uh, who's back there in that back and uh could have that's that Oxford but because he ran around with the Oxford University students a lot and they were that's who that's who was back there. So it got the name Oxford. That's how it got that name. But to remember, it's perfectly called the First Century Christian Fellowship. Uh it had a bad thing happen in nineteen thirty eight, thirty-six. Uh this well very Frank Buchman is the person who started, not Buchman. He, started, he, he said some nice things about Adolf Hitler, because Adolf Hitler was against those communists who were atheists down there, or uh, Russia, and he was against them, so he said some nice things about the guy who was against the atheists, see, and then we all know what Adolf Hitler did, and that caused a demise and almost a, the end of the Austrian group, even be, they even had to change their name of the Austrian group after that, and the Oscar membership, and fickle as all that might be, but they did a lot of wonderful things. And one of the most wonderful things they did is to give us our 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you didn't know that, that. Most of our 12 steps come directly out of that. And I pass this around picture of him. Some of you old enough to know who Mae West was. This is a joke picture. He's with Mae West. She was a she's a lady of uh, she's one of the wild ladies of those days, like Madonna would be in our day, or something like that. Or whatever. That's yeah. all got, got passe these days, but nonetheless. So he he goes over to the Oxford Group and uh, gets to New York and he stays there. He stays sober a little bit, and then he's not doing good. He's drunk again. He goes back and forth, and uh, he goes somewhere else up in Boston, and uh, that didn't work out very well. But he 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 was on and off. He didn't really give it a good shot. He he didn't really do the things they said to do, but. I don't know. It wasn't working, the main thing is. But, now let's jump ahead in time. Let's go up to 1938. And, uh, Roland, of course, he's got places, got houses. Oh, he had a, they're called a cottage. I think it had 10 or 11 bedrooms up in Vermont. And I had a picture of it somewhere. I don't have it with me. But, uh, He's in he's up there in a big swimming pool, and uh, they're having a nice time. It's a little bit below Manchester, Vermont. And uh, there's word of somebody who was a friend of uh, one of the Oxford group members who's having trouble with being sober. And uh, they, they made a decision to go out and maybe help discuss. This guy's name is Ebby Thatcher. And this is a picture of is as a young man. Evie was an interesting person he uh, he grew up with a spoon in his mouth uh, some of the things here uh he had uh, his brother his grandfather was mayor of Auburn, New York and his uncle had been mayor of Auburn, new york and at this present time in the early thirties uh, uh his brother, uh, was Jack, was mayor of Albany, New York. In 1932, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt became president for being governor, he stood to run for governorship the whole state of, uh, of New York. This is the kind of family that Ebby came from. And I have pictured in this book here with Ebby's uh, father playing with the, with the president of the United States, Taft, and so on like that. And, and uh, so they were really, really wealthy people. <clears throat> but Ebby looked a lot like his brother. And if you're a politician, you don't want a drunken Ebby around getting, getting in trouble all the time. And that's bad for publicity. You're looking for votes. So Ebby, why don't you leave, uh, Albany, <clears throat> exiled him, and you take, you live in our house over here at a summer cottage, they call it. They bought, it. in 1923, they bought this summer cottage over in, uh, the, uh, the Manchester, Vermont. And here's a picture of Ebby. And this is a picture of the house where Abby, Abby, Abby was, was sent to. There's two pictures of it there. The back of that's the courthouse too. But I'll, I'll send this along too, but this is the same group of pictures. <clears throat> so Abby was there. Well, he the first six months, Abby stayed sober. He took a job in the mountains, up clearing bushes in the mountains. Of all that. And imagine a guy with his prestige doing that. But he stayed sober for six months doing that. He came down off the mountaintop and next thing you know, he's drunk again, and uh, one of his escapades, uh, he's driving his father's Packard. so goes the story, and he somehow loses control of it drunk, and runs into the side of this lady's house. And this maybe not too hard, but he ran into it anyway, and she can't see what happened. He said, uh, good afternoon, ma'am. Would be a good time for a spot of coffee, would it not? <laughs> she didn't think that was funny at all. She called the police, you know, and so. But he got off the hook on that one, but yet he had, he had two of these kind of things against him. And in Vermont, number three, time number three, you, 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 you were assigned to Brattleboro Insane Assault, where he was at for six months. And he was, he was, he was like a cooked goose. so he's in deep chicken fat trouble. I mean, uh, he was scared. And this is a wonderful story. AA depends on this story I'm going to tell you. Ebby, <clears throat> uh, had was never a very religious man. Matter of fact, these Oxford Group people, these two here, which is Shepard Graves and, Several Graves and, and, uh, uh she, Shepherd Shepp Cornell, these two people were Oxford Groupers. They'd been trying to help him get sober before these things happened. Ebbe said, go to hell. He'd be sitting with his hand on his knees and all, oh, he's just feeling awful, and he's drinking himself to death actually. And he said and he wouldn't pay attention to him at all. But this got his attention this time. I'll tell you what happened to it. Ebbie got drunk again, and he just got to painting this house or helping painter to get it done. He had some help with it. But there's some pigeons up on that house, and he didn't like those pigeons being there and he's drunk. It was night, it was pouring down rain. Well, they don't stop the drunk. He's got this 12-gauge shotgun. He goes out here and bang, he's shooting his pigeons up there. Well, the shotgun knocked him down. There he is laying on his back. Boom, boom, he didn't care. He's <laughs> in the mud, shooting the pigeons. Neighbors saw it. And, of course, he was reported. Well, respectful people like that. I mean, the neighborhood, Robert Todd Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's son, lived across the street from them at one time. I mean, this is the kind of neighborhood in. You don't have the police coming in. and But Abby's they're, they're, on the books. They're gonna, he's going to have to go to court somewhere, and he knew it. He stayed drunk a few days, didn't leave the house. He finally goes down. He finally goes downtown after about three days, couldn't stand home anymore, and he's sitting on a hardware store. That picture's in here of the hardware store in nineteen this is this is nineteen thirty four. This is late summer. And the sheriff comes by or the deputy, whatever it was, and told him he had to go to court. They took him down to court. And the judge uh judge uh, happened to be the guy that tried to help him, Sebra Bray's father, Judge Graves, told Gabby he said, okay, Evie, I mean, these guys are all in, they're all rich people. He said, well, um, if you come back here Monday morning, I'm going to let you off the hook. And you can go down with Roland Hazard, and maybe these Oxford groupers can, you live with Roland Hazard, and maybe he can help you get sober. And uh, so, Evie, a very unspiritual man now, mind this, it's important. He goes home. And he's pacing back and forth. And if you have ever been drunk uh, and so on like that on a Friday or like that, and you're sitting there like that and you're shaking, you need to drink awful bad. He ain't got any to drink. He's got three little Valentine ales down the basement, all there is. But he goes down and I could take a sip on those and it would be, uh, you know, and calm down at least nobody knows the difference. Anyway, I probably think. But Emmy was one
2: of the he's part of the Eastern establishment. Hill fellows well met, you might say. Um, uh, he had the respectful person, kind honest person you could be. He said to himself, he said, No, that makes me playing the game square, the way he looked at it. No. If I take him that was that not not to drink anything.
1: He kept those now. A A Dependent, he took his three bottles of ale, Valentine's ale, and gave it to a neighbor.
2: Thank God goes back
1: and in court Monday morning sober. And the judge let him off the hook. Well, he goes home. Well this actually happened before he got off the hook. He went home. Now let's go back to Friday Saturday. I've got the hand of my story here. Saturday he goes home
2: after the after his prayers are He began to feel kind of relieved. He's got his he, need, and he, I remember him giving this talk on 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 recording I have at home. In 1951 recording he did, and he said he prayed with all his heart. He could never pray like that before in his life. We well, take into the release so and all at once, Eddie had a release. It lasted <laughs> like two years of settlement. What? Now isn't that about at work? Well, all that, all that, all that, all
1: that does. Does like of those, The Judge lets him the He goes, goes and hazard get up and like that. He does. It takes over two seven months, which is enough time for him to carry the message to uh, Bill Wilson. As we kind of know, most of you kind of know, he carried the message
2: to Bill in and, and, uh, 1935, and so 1930,
1: uh, 19… <laughs> I mean 1934, and uh, actually that was in. Uh, the late uh, couple months after that, maybe around November, something like that. Um, here's some of the things about um, what I told you about. Uh, he goes down now. Evie had a choice. He'd been sober. He stayed sober for a few weeks. He had a choice. Now he could he could go back home. He, now he's sober. His brothers gonna come back. He could live with a spoon in his mouth and have servants, everything, if he wanted to. But he had some kind of conversion experience. This is very important, I think, in Alcoholics Anonymous, because he had this conversion. He thought, no, I've got this thing I'm not drinking. I can help other people. So he allows Roland to take him down to Calgary Mission with a bunch of smelly old drunks down there, live with them and try to help them get sober. Now, isn't that a great thought? I mean, he had a change. I think when people have a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism to some degree or another, they, they become a different person, a new man. And, and I think that's what happened. Now, this is a picture of the Parish House where the Oxford groupers would meet in those days. And again, this is a house where fate a, a would have it that Ebby, uh, Ebby's house was there, but you see his house here? That's Lois Wilson's, uh, uh, parents' house. It was connected to it. Isn't that an amazing coincidence that that would happen? Yeah. That's the way, the way fate comes together. And this is some pictures. This is the Calvary mission here. It took a long time to get that picture. That's the inside of it. This is a church where a shoemaker was and where they all went for a long time. This is the calvary uh 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 meeting place and uh they 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 had uh one time they had some drunks in there. they thought they'd be they' just kind to these drunks they'll be you you can just treat them nice with kid gloves and just be so nice to them. So they got a bunch of drunks up there in this beautiful, beautiful place. These are millionaires all over here. And what did the drunks do? Well, they threw his shoes to a, to a stained glass window. <laughs> and they kind of lost their idea about drunks of that. So they, went, so they weren't too interested in drunks when Evie and them started coming up. But they had the Calvary mission and you keep it going. But they didn't get invited with, a, with the other people. This is a better picture, too. Pass that out if you please. Okay. Now, Evie's sober. And... Uh, He's helping these drunks, he supposedly worked very well with drugs. He was a good twelve stepper and helped him a lot, 'cause it wasn't called twelve step then, it was just an Oxford Group. And in the Oxford group, you get your knees, you have a surrender. They had a special kind of surrender, which Abby did at one point. You turn your life over to God on your knees, and that's that that was what was done in those days. And it, well liked. Everybody liked Abby. They hang around Sturitz cafeteria. You'll read about that somewhere if you study the history, that was nearby, and they all had a wonderful time. But he started thinking, you know, my buddy Bill, he knew Bill Wilson. And, you know, um, Bill and he did one drunk together. Do you hear they used to drink together and so on like that? They only had, I heard Abby tell this, they only had one drunk together. And it was a night, they were in Albany, New York, and he and Bill, this is 1929. This is, this is, this is uh, January of 1929. And they were uh, up all night drinking, and they decided... You know, Bill had to go into, the next day he was going to go to Manchester, Vermont, just 60 miles away, not a very nice drive. They're drunk, and they just say, well, what if we just flew an airplane in there? And so they they had a, some, called barnstormers back in those days. And, I mean, don't forget, airplanes airplanes are, are really something new back in those days. I'm so old myself, way older than you think I am. But when I was young, like in like the 1930s, it was like an airplane, airplane. You see, everybody's all excited about you seeing an airplane. It wonderful, see? And, and, and so that, that was those kind of days. So it was a big deal to land there. And so Bill says nobody had landed there before. Well, they had, but he said they hadn't. But so they take off this barn They're all drunk. Three of them drunk. They take off like this over the mountains, or the iconic mountains, and come down They land the airport. And Bill claims, if you read about it, there's a, the, the high school band was out there. Everybody's out there celebrating. So they landed. Here's Bill and Evie. get off. He said, We both fell down drunk, and right in front of everybody, and disgraced the whole thing. He spent a whole day writing that. That's the only time he and Ebby, but Ebby but knew each other. They knew each other in school days. They went to Barn and Burton uh, school when they were, they were teenagers. So they knew each other from way back then. So, coming back to New York, he said, I think maybe I could help Bill out. And this is the famous kitchen table story. He calls up Bill's wife Lois Wilson here and uh, this is a good picture of Bill here, and he gets permission to come over there and have have a luncheon with them and have a talk and this and that and the other. And she said, oh, yeah, it'd be fine. And Bill Wilson's waiting there, and uh, here comes Evie. Well, he's all excited about Evie being here. They could talk about it all the time. Here's a nice picture of, the, of, the, of the Bill and, and Lois when she was young. And, uh, oh, they're all excited about this. And, uh, this is the kitchen table I'm going to be telling you about here, too. And so, he goes there and talks to Bill, and this is what happens. Page 9 of your big book, you want to follow me along with me on this here. I go to a halfway house the last 15 years I've been going there, and Half of the people in Halfway House are not very interested in me being there at all because you know that's the way things are sometimes. But, but and they're, they're, but I like to read this. This is this is a big message. I think a historical message here that's really important. And the door opened, and he stood there, fresh skinned and glowing. That's Ebby. There was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different. What had happened? I pushed a drink across the table, he refused it. Disappointed but curious, I wondered what had gotten the fellow. He wasn't himself. Come, what's this all about? I queried. He looked straight at me, and simply but smug, he said, I've got religion. I was aghast. <laughs> so that was it. Last sermon, alcoholic crackpot, now I suspect a little cracked about religion. He had that starry eyed look alright. Yes, the old boy's on fire right, but bless his heart and let him ramp. Besides, my gin will last longer than his
2: preaching.
1: <laughs> well, it didn't. It didn't. <laughs> and that's a wonderful thing, because this, this is where Ace is going to get started here now, see? He takes off a few days later. Evie goes home. They had a long conversation, I guess, they talked about it all the times, time, but they also talked about the Oxford group. And this is important. i like to get across to you here. What was the essence of Evie's message in a word? two words perhaps let us say let's see what it was that he brought to him but he did no ranting and a matter of fact he told how two men had appeared in court persuading the judge to suspend his commitment they told of a simple religious idea that's a vital spiritual experience and a practical program of action this was the four absolutes uh, of the Oxford group along with some tenets of living that they had to go by so he brought this message, and this is where it comes. This first century Christian fellowship comes to Bill. He's got these ideas. He see what they did, and we hear it today, you know. And uh, a vital spiritual experience. We, we we read about that in Step Twelve, and a spiritual program of action. Let, that's all our steps. So that that's what it is. That the Oxford Group brought us all most all of our Twelve Steps of today, and it's important to know that. But it had an effect on Bill because he got sober a little bit sober. Two or three days later, I'm going to go down to that mission and see what that Ebby's doing. So he gets on a he gets on a subway. He's going. He lives a he lives just near the Brooklyn Bridge in Brooklyn Heights. I've been to his house, and there he's going to cross there. But on the way, he meets a guy named Alex Affin, and Alex Finn decided, well, before they go there, they're going to go together. Then they thought they'd go see what's going on there. And they said, well, well, let's have a beer. So they had a drink, and next thing you know, they're both drunk. So Bill still goes. He gets in there. They're going to talk about how they stay sober. You get in there, you stand at the podium, you talk, and tell how sober, you, how you got sober. Praise the Lord, hallelujah, and all that. Bill's all drunk. He gets daggers up in the podium, and he starts talking about, that. Oh. <laughs> they had to give him some beans to get him off the stage, I guess, and so on like <laughs> that. But he met uh, his, his, his spiritual mentor, Sam Shoemaker, at that time, Reverend Sam Shoemaker. He said, I could see that Bill was exceptional person at that time. He had a he had a, a suit, he paid five dollars for it, so he's dressed up and he, everybody else is dressed the way they do in a mission. So he kinda of stood out there a little bit. Well, <clears throat> still drunk. Okay. About a few days later, now this is an important thing. Good good date to remember. I always celebrate that on the internet. The eleventh day of December, nineteen thirty four. Bill leaves the house. He's going to go to town's hospital where he'd been three times before now. This is his fourth visit. He got drunk every time and,
2: and his brother-in-law
1: paid for it. But he said, uh, well, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to get sober and so on. He had some paperwork in one hand. He's walking toward the subway entrance and there's a grocery store Well, his wife had a little bit of credit. The family had a little credit in there. Well, what's he going to do? What's he going to do, you suppose? He got four bottles of beer. is what he did. He drank one, two, three. He offered one on the subway. The guy wouldn't take it. So what's he do with the last one? He's got his hand. He's got paperwork on one hand. And a, and the Boone, he walks in the town's hospital, so goes the story. Hey, Doc, I got the answer. I got the answer. So they took him down, probably strapped him down in bed, gave him the cold treatment. They strapped him up his sheets and stuff like that. Gave him the belladonna treatment. And, uh, oh, it was really something back. And they had to be sturdy people back in those days. I want to read you something about the kind of treatment that they, they had in, in, in those days. I'll read it to you. If you get the book, there's a picture of all these bottles here. But you can't see them. you can't see that this is what I'm gonna to read to you. The Belladonna treatment. This is this is this is a, this is the eleventh day of December, nineteen thirty-four. I'd like to repeat that date because I think it's important to remember it. The mixture was given every hour the Belladonna treatment the mixture was given every hour day and night for nearly fifty hours. A long time. The end of the treatment was marked by abundance of stools and castor oil. <laughs> given to a patient as a further pugative. Imagine that. Castor oil. Ugh. The treatments also described puke and purge. Every twelve hours, the patient is given uh, co- compound cathartic pills and a blue mass. Whatever that is. These were 19th-century medications of varying composition. Blue mass included mercury and was prescribed for uh, a different kind of ailments. When a patient was admitted to the hospital while intoxicated at the end of a spree, the first thing was done was to put the patient to sleep. The only meditation given prior was the hypnotic, was the four of these pills. The hypnotic Lamport, uh, found best, that's Dr. Lamport, found best was, contained chloral hydrate and morphine, along with one or two grams of paral, par- 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 paral, par- l- I got it. If the patient went to sleep easily on this hypnotic, was safe to give him every hour for his belladonna resume. Doctor Lambert believed it was also important to administer a small amount of strychnine every four hours. Now, there you are. That's what the, that's what, what a treatment that was, huh? Well, you wouldn't want to come back, but they did, and uh, again, and again. But uh, whatever happened and in the hospital, well, it was a very, very important thing. Bill's sitting in the hospital. And uh, he wonders, what can I do to stay sober? Now, let's say it's the 14th. Nobody knows exactly, but most historians think it was the 14th day of January. When this takes place, I want to read to you. He's in the hospital, and he's really repentant, and he wants to quit drinking, but he's still, still, he's probably plagued with that mental obsession that we all know about. The real significance my experience at the cathedral burst upon me. That's when he's in England a long time ago. He had a religious deal when he was younger. For a brief moment, I needed one of God. There had been a humble willingness to have him with me, and he came. But soon, the sense of his presence had been blotted out by worldly clamors. Mostly those in myself, so it had been so ever since. How blind had I been? Now I hear defeat in his voice now. He's, he's kind of defeated. He's really defeated. At the hospital, I was separated for alcohol for the last time. Thank God for us. Treatment seemed wise, for I'd seen signs so of delirium tremens. Okay. Uh, there I humbly offered myself to God as I then understood Him. What's the step that sound like? Step three, right? Okay, step three. As he would, I placed myself undeservedly under his care and direction. I admitted for the first time that of myself I was nothing. That was him, Without him, I was lost. I ruthlessly faced my sins. Step four. and became going to have my newfound friend, God, take them away. Brute and branch. Newfound friends, capitalized. That's God. Step six and seven. I've not had a drink since. My schoolmate, that's Ebby, visited me and I fully acquainted him with my problems and deficiencies. That's step five. We made a list of people I hurt and toward whom I felt resentment and expressed my entire willingness to approach these individuals admitting my wrong. The essence of eight and nine. Never was I to be critical of them. as was right write all such matters to that most of my ability. I was to test my thinking with my new God conscious within, a Common sense would thus become uncommon sense. And that's kind of like step 10, I guess. Somebody thought that. I don't know. There it goes, he says, I was set quietly when in doubt asking only for direction and strength to meet my problems as He would have me. Never was I to pray for myself except that as my request bore my usefulness to others. Only then might I expect to receive, but that would be in great measure. Step 11 for you, see? And then the first part of step 12 is here too. My friend promised that when these things were done, I would enter a new relationship with our Creator. And, and so on. So that that's the first part of step 12, having had a spiritual experience. And so on. So you see... Bill does this in bed, probably still half drunk, and he has a vital spiritual experience on the next page, okay? and uh, it, it, it just, uh, it, it just, so, somebody think, oh, you take a long, long time to do steps, There's all kind of ways people have to do it, I'm not aware of whatever way to do it, but, but yet you see what he did, in a very, very fast order, he did the prerequisite to cause what I'm going to read to you next, and this is what happened next, on page 14. <clears throat> first full paragraph simple but not easy a price had to be paid it meant destruction of self sickness. I must turn in all things to the Father Light who presides over us all these were revolutionary, revolutionary and drastic proposals but the moment I fully accepted them the effect was electric there was a sense of victory followed by such a peace and serenity as I had never known there was utter confidence. I felt lifted up with so the great clean wind of a mountaintop blew through and through. God comes to most men gradually, but his impact on me was sudden and profound. And that was his vital spiritual experience. For a moment, I was alarmed. I called my friend, the doctor, to ask if I were still sane. He listened in wonder as I talked. Funny thing, Bill Wilson's later on, psychiatrist, Dr. Tebow said that to, informed me. He said, well, yes, Bill, you're a you, 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 you're mentally sane, but you're emotionally crazy. <laughs> I think that's true for a lot of alcoholics, including me. Uh, so it goes on. Finally he shook his head saying, something's happened to you, I don't understand, but you better hang on to it. Anything's better than the way you were. The good doctor now knows many men who have such experience. He knows they are real. Well, uh, that's, uh, that, that's, that's something that he didn't know, but he could see it, he read about it, and, uh, we know it's real. But how do we know it's real? Bill didn't know, but what he'd had, what he had a hallucination. How would he know the difference? Well, at this point, Ebby Thatcher came in, some people say it was Roland but I think probably it might have been him, this book. Sir William James getting the Varieties of Religious Experience, very difficult book. We were talking about a friend of mine before here, and uh, this book. Uh, it's very difficult. He must have skimmed over it. He said he read the book. You couldn't, he couldn't have read a book like that in a short period of time. But he got the idea from this book that the people who had these vital spiritual experiences through the ages had one thing in common, they were deflated at death. And he certainly was deflated at death. And a couple of other things he, he
2: identified
1: with this so he decided, yes, I probably really had a vital spiritual experience, thank God. And because he had that thought, this is what he started thinking. I just wrote an article about this this morning. <clears throat> My, well I lay in a hospital, this is the proof. Now, how do we know he this is how we know that he had a vital spiritual experience. <clears throat> well, they in the hospital, thought came that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what had so freely been given me. Perhaps I could help some of them. They, in time, they in turn might work with others. What an idea! Yeah, I could do that. Yeah. So, Bill entered the hospital, as we said, on the 11th day of December, 1934. He leaves one week later, on the 18th day. I think it's on a Tuesday. <clears throat> Doesn't matter. He walked out of the hospital. Now, if you read about Bill Wilson, you know Bill Wilson what at one thing in his life, he wanted to be a big shot on Wall Street. He wanted to be playing golf at the Grove, he wanted to be all that, and rich, and everything like that. Matter of fact, he made three quarters of a million dollars of week on paper on Wall Street because of the 1949 crash, and he was doing good at one time. That's a lot of money
2: today, compared to Dave, If mean, you can take that time you can today, I mean, you know, a lot of money for your off,
1: But, he was a very important man. He walk out of town hospital, you go two directions. You go to Wall Street, out in the middle of Manhattan, but you go down to 23rd Street, uh, at that mission down there, with a bunch of old, sot smelly drunks. Where'd he go? Because of what he thought in that hospital, because he had had a vital, spiritual experience of transformation, he goes down to work with the drunks. They took one home with him, and he fed him. And he prayed for him, and he told him what had happened to him and everything. Surely, you it I can understand that? Well, guess what? The drunk did. I <coughs> got, got drunk. Didn't go to war. No, he, he goes back again. Gets one He got drunk. He got in there, He got drunk. And he, got in there, he got drunk. Every other day he gets one. He all got drunk. He all got drunk. Goes over three months, four months. They all got drunk. Every every one. He told his wife Lowe, she said, Honey, I, I think I'm a flop
2: flop it doesn't mean it. said, Honey, this is real important. I remember you're still sober. goes on story, He was sober. You could see that was keeping him sober. Somebody said he worked with 50 drugs for four months. This this begins this this begins in December. Or probably
1: the maybe first of January, January,
2: February, March, April. Those four months, you look at all these things. Lois uh,
1: <clears throat> is uh, thank God for the women of those days. Uh, she worked uh, at Leo's uh, department store, trying to keep things going. He didn't have any money, and ever they were just very poor, getting by. But they, he took these drunks home and fed them everything like that out of her money. And he felt bad. Maybe he should go back to work, he thought. And uh Dr. Silkworth told him something pretty important. I think we all should know this too. Dr. Silkworth was the doctor. I'm gonna get behind on my paperwork here. Let me pass, send in some of these around here. This is uh this is uh this is Clinton Street. And uh this is where he Bill lives. That's Bill's house. That's Bill and Abby together at one point. This is another picture of Clinton Street. And this is a picture of the kitchen table where that famous talk took place. That table still in Beverly Hills at Stepping Stones today. You can go there and visit it. It's still there preserved after all this time. I think that's wonderful. This is where they live now. And so on. Like that. And then, this is Dr. Silkworth. The guy who told Bill what I want to tell you now. Uh, he said to Dr. Silkworth, Dr. Silkworth tells you, he said, Bill... You've been trying to jam that religious stuff down those people's throats, but that vital, the hot flash you had, that vital spiritual experience, and they're not going to take that. These, these drunks have been sitting in the midst singing for their supper for years. They don't. They already heard all that stuff. They ain't got religious stuff. You can't tell them that stuff. You tell them about these two things. And talk about step one. when well, we study step one. We find a two major parts of it. Step one, we take a shot of whiskey. We can't stop for nothing. It's called a phenomenal craving after the first drink. That's one part, and the other part and we still manage to fill mm-hmm. a beaker for
2: a drink. it's okay. I got it right now. I don't drink, so it don't matter. But the problem we got
1: is before we take a drink, it's called a mental obsession, and that's the only problem we got.
2: But it's exactly what A. solve today. Well, they didn't know about him. He said, "You, you tell about the physical
1: allergy and the mental obsession. They'll understand that." So he had that in mind, and so he finally goes back to Wall Street, and this one friend of his was delighted to see him sober. And a uh, rich guy,
2: and there's a there's a stock takeover by a machine company down
1: in Akron, Ohio. Bill decided he was going to go down there and maybe help with this stock takeover. If he took it over, he could be president of the company maybe and have a lot of money. He'd be rich again. Everything would be fine. So he leaves New York. He heads down for Akron, Ohio. And while he goes to Akron, Ohio, he headed down there we could all be headed outside to smoke a cigarette or have a little break, or he would bring some coffee and do some stuff we want to do. And we'll come back in about 10 minutes or so, if you
2: don't mind. 15 minutes maybe. okay?
1: Okay, welcome back, everybody. I uh, feel uh, very flattered to speak in a prestigious room such as this, a municipal building. going I remember one time, I was 19 years old, I was in the municipal building, my father was there. I was there. And the reason I was there,
2: I was down in the bootleg area of my hometown, North 12th Street.
1: And I Uncle Bill's all right around her. Uh very respectable place. And I was running down the street and Hank Woods a cop, was chasing after me. So I turned around to the baby swing at all, Hank Woods missing probably that far. So boom, right across the side of my ear. And I wake up in the morning, Judge Hurts in my ear, and there. Now, I've been to that same year. at 19 years old. Um, I've been to that judge twice before we get
2: drunk. And he says, I've had my father's in the audience sobbing with a bunch of
1: to an idiot son. And the judge says, I don't feel sorry for you. You disgrace your mother. You disgrace your father.
2: Ninety days of Pennell Corn, boy, it was bad. <laughs> 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 I was about seven years old. And the sheriff knew I'd a deputy sheriff, and he was going to do my dad, and got both Well, I'll tell you what happened. I quit drinking forever at nineteen years old.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then at twenty years old, I quit drinking forever. <laughs> 21 years ago, I quit drinking forever. And for many, many years, there's not and by the one year ever in by life, but what? I quit drinking forever. And I always got drunk. And so I got alcohol to none. Now I haven't
2: quit drinking forever. I had to probably do it. It's a wonderful
1: program of that. So just being a carrier is quite different this time than being a carrier back then. <laughs> Uh, I'm to bring that up. So we're talking about Bill Wilson now. He's leaving New York, and I got a little stuff I can read here about what was going on there. Business friend Howard Tompkins, Tompkins he's from New York, of Beer and Company, sent Bill to attempt to take over a proxy fight for National Rubber and Machine Company. Uh, and so he goes down there to uh like a stock takeover. It looks like things are going pretty good. If it turns out well, he may be president of the corporation. He become wealthy, wealthy, have money again. Lois, will ha- his wife Lois, will have to stop working, supporting everybody. And um, things are really looking up. But at the last minute, the vote went the wrong way. And all of his friends went back to New York and left Bill to spend the rest of the summer there to do legal work because there's was still some chance he could make it happen, but it looked as though it wasn't going to happen. And uh, so here's Bill. He's at the uh, Mayflower Hotel.
2: These over here.
1: And this is the Mayflower Hotel. How many people been there? Okay. We had a trip to Akron. Could we pass this around? Uh, before I forget to tell you this, uh, last September, less than a year ago, uh, we had a trip out of Dayton. There's going to, by the fact, there's going to be a trip out of Dayton. You probably know about it already. We're going to have to get this next fall and go to Akron, go to all around all the different places in Akron. You leave the Alco Age Club at Dayton at 8 o'clock in the morning and get back that night about midnight. It's a wonderful thing to do. If you haven't seen it, you'll see ads about it around. The well, they did it last September. And we did all that stuff. And one of the great honors of my life is when it, the last thing you do, somebody gives a talk at the Mayflower Hotel in that lobby where I'm going to tell you about where Bill walks up and down. And uh, I, I got to give the talk there. And that was like one of the most wonderful things I had in my life. I got a talk in a room adjacent to the lobby of the Mayflower Hotel. Uh, but now here's Bill. He's in, a, he stayed at the Mary Flower Hotel. It's built in 1931. Uh, Prohibition was in 1931, so it wasn't until 1933 that they would have had Bill to borrow. But By that time, this is 1935. This is May of 1935. May 11th, 1935. And Bill's walking back and forth. Poor Bill's got like $10 in his pocket. Hotel bill for more than that. But he still has money coming from New York because they're sending him money to represent them and, and he's walking back and forth and, uh, he's lonesome and he's disappointed, terribly sad. He hear the laughter coming out of the bar room. Maybe I could go in there and strike up an acquaintance I wouldn't feel so bad. I have a ginger ale. And his mind started thinking, well, maybe, maybe a couple drinks wouldn't hurt." Then he got—he felt he got scared to death. And uh, oh my God, what am I going to do? And he remembered what Lois had told him. Lois told him, when to work with be when he says a flop, of working with all those drugs?" He said, "Honey, yes, but you stayed sober." He said, "Well, yeah, maybe I can find, maybe I can find a drunk to work with here in Akron, Ohio. How am I going to do that?" He goes over to the telephone booth, and there's a roster there. Names. One is called Reverend Tunks. Uh, Lewis thinks the reason he picked Reverend Tunks is because an expression on the East Coast is taking, we take a walk and he's taking a tongue. I don't know. you're not sure, nobody knows. But anyway, you picked Reverend
2: Tunks. And Reverend Tunks yeah. tunk said, uh,
1: well, uh, I can't tell you, uh, I can't tell you any Oxford Group members myself. But I know somebody who can, and he gave him a list of people who, who, could, who could do it. He knew he sent some members, he can 10 members, but he didn't know which one to send. But he said, I need to work with a drunk. I've got to find somebody drunk, and maybe somebody else <coughs> can help me with it, because he's a member of the Oxford Group, he said. Uh, this is a picture of the bar that looked there in those days. So there you are. Now, see that?
2: This is important.
1: It took me many, many years to get this picture. It's
2: just not easy to by. This is the bar. Not made as a bar to begin with, as I
1: said. But, go, to, go to the lobby. How many people have been in the lobby? have all been in the lobby. lobby has a go to the lobby. The elevator's this way. The south part. I know it's that sounds Which way is south? No mess. Go up the stairs and to the right. Go down there. The elevator's here. They this room over here. Here's where the marble uh, They got the long thing up there. You'll that during Founders they got an arrow going up. They
2: used to. I think they took it down. And it's upstairs and it's in, but it's not. It's just, uh, mm-hmm. the same as before, by the elevators. So, that's where we thought we figured
1: that one out. So, Bill starts calling numbers. He calls one, two, three, four, five, call, call maybe ten people. No answer. Bill, do they could help them. They're all going out of town or something, or they didn't know any drunk. And so, he gets a hold of Henrietta Cyberling by uh, the last one. He knew she was. This is Reverend Tunks who gave him that information here. And then this is Henrietta Syvling at the age she was then. And this is Henrietta sybling when she was a young beauty. And uh, she married the Syvling Tire Company people, which was Goodyear at one time as a branch off of that. very very wealthy people. Her uh, her uh, estate is just acres and acres, a great big enormous estate. How many people have been to the state up there? Yeah, good. It's really something to see. It's exciting. But she was living in a gatehouse. She's having a separation from her husband, and uh, she was living in a gatehouse, which is a very nice place. And It's a good, great place to visit. Well, she said to Bill Wilson. Now imagine calling up a millionaire's and he knew who she was. I'm a rum hound out of New York, and I need to work with a drunk. Can you help me? I mean, calling a millionaire it says. He almost didn't do it. Thank God he did. And what happened? She said, my God, this is manna from heaven. You come over here right away. Now, why would she say that? Because in the ostrich group a couple of weeks before, they all knew Dr. Bob was drinking awful bad. He would never admit it. But she went over and she said, we're going to have an officer group meeting, a bunch of us, and we no, no, no pussyfooting around. We're going to tell the truth this time, isn't right there. And Dr. Bob, a couple of weeks before, admitted, he said, well, I must have been a secret drinker. Well, I said, there, people didn't know it. And, uh, and, uh, so, uh, he, he said, and, uh, so, uh, uh, I, I can't stop myself from drinking. She told him, I intuitively right. She said, Bob, you, Dr. Bob, you just can't take that first drink. That's all. She knew that somehow. He didn't know it. I was just up there at Akron for Founders
2: Day, and uh,
1: well, in the archives they got something here, it's a little bottle, about that big, it's a, it's a doctor's kind of a bottle, and you talk about him hiding whiskey in his socks, well that didn't make sense to me, because even a half pint bottle in your socks wouldn't fit very well, but it's a little tiny bottle fit right in your sock, and <laughs> secret drinker indeed, I don't know, I never carry whiskey in my socks, <laughs> when I drank, everybody knew I drank, I didn't care, <laughs> what people drink with me, I didn't care about it. But anyway, that's what he did. He had been a doctor, he had to be careful. And so she wanted to help him. And it's just like manna from heaven that Bill had called and asked that question. You come over here right away. And some people think he walked over there. It's about it's a long walk, several couple of miles, I suppose. And uh, Clarence Snyder said, Akron, Ohio is a city of hills. It's got seven hills in it. He said, they're all up. All the hills are up. <laughs> but uh, anyway. Whether he walked or took a bus or somehow he went there. But a funny thing is, this is how some archives people are. I know a a history guy down in Bloomington, Indiana. He went to the Mayflower Hotel and he walked and he counted the steps from one place to the next. I don't know how many there were. (laughs) So he wanted to see, but he wanted to to take the same time. Matter of fact, he called me on the cell phone as he was doing it. (laughs) Archives people, history people do all kinds of things. And, uh, but he went there and told her that he had to work with somebody. She, she told him about Dr. Bob. She called Dr. Bob's house, talked to Ann. This is
2: Ann, of course, this is Dr. Bob. And, uh,
1: talked to him and, uh, her, But Dr. Bob, it was going to be Mother's Day the next day, and uh, he brought home a potted plant for 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 Ann, and he was potted too. Uh, the joke goes he's passed out on a table. It wasn't really true, but he was drunk, and they put him to bed. And she said, well, we can't come over now, but maybe we could come over tomorrow. That would be Mother's Day, the 12th day of May, 1934. 5. Now, this is an important day for us all to remember. I always like to remember it. And that day comes up, I always write over the internet about what a grateful day we should be for this, this, this to happen. So, Bill goes over. Uh, Bill stayed there. I know he spent the night there or went back to the hotel, but he was there the next afternoon. Dr. Bob, his wife, uh, Smitty, his son, came over. And her son, Henry had a son was there too as well and you'll see him talking on that uh Dawn of Hope tape I gave out and talking about it this is what the gatehouse looked like in the old days and uh wait a minute hold it no it's not that's a different picture anyway uh, this is this is the room which they they had supper they called it supper then and then they returned to the library this is the library room and this is still there now, if you set this table right here and push a button, Dr. Bob and Bill will start talking to you on that table. What kind of a mystical thing. I think
2: that's all set up. Kind of thing.
1: I never actually been in that room because I was there during Founder's Day, and they won't let you in it. But I stuck my hand in it just
2: to feel part of it. So I did get that close to it. Okay. That's interesting.
1: That was, uh, so they had a conversation. He said, I'll talk this bird for about 15 minutes. That's hot I gotta get out of here. You he gotta hang over, you didn't feel good. And uh one of the things that Dr. Bill told Dr. Bob he said, You look like you need a drink. And man, Dr. Bob, this guy knows what he's talking about. And Bill went on to talk about when he took a drink he could stop drinking for nothing. He went on talking about when he quit drinking forever he got drunk again, just like me. And Dr. Bob I did great with that, you know. Thank God he didn't start telling Bill all about the religion, because uh Dr. Bob has been gone to the Oxford group for two and a half years and probably knew a lot more about religion than he did. See, this is not a program of action of knowledge and knowing things. I love to I teach the big book. I've been teaching the big book for twenty five years. Right? I love to teach it. But I don't get anybody sober. No, no, that's that. what gets you sober. It's one drunk sharing with another drunk. It's a problem it's a heart, one heart to the next heart. It's called love. This is what makes this work. It isn't but, but but there's that identification. But uh but Dr. Bob didn't know about the physical and mental obsession anyway, but that was good him knowing. It kind of convinced this guy knows what he's talking about and I can feel that. And Dr. Bob left there feeling wonderful, it must have felt wonderful. He had a fellowship of something or other and oh oh yeah, this is great. And uh, so what they did, they went out and work with a the drunk. They called his a a rake, that means a bad guy a doctor, he wasn't too good of a guy. And he wasn't serious, no he got drunk and didn't didn't do good. And Dr. Bob always was 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 uh, leery of people who weren't serious about AA all through his life. They would not beg you to join AA back in those days for sure. And uh, it might have had something to do with what happened to Dr. Bob. After that event happened, there was a there was a, there was a medical uh, 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 American Me- Medical Association had a big doing every year at at the uh, a big conference or convention. Atlantic City, New Jersey, and and Dr. Bob always went to that. He always got drunk when he went. They didn't want him to go. Bill Wilson said, oh, let him go because he's got to learn it. And so he went. And he was drunk before he got there. And he stayed drunk for several days. Uh, i got it here just for fun to see the sequence of all this. And this is something important I'm going to tell you. Uh, I'll read this. A.A. celebrates... Let's see. I'll start here. <clears throat> this, is, this is at home in Akron. They feared the worst, but at last he walked in the door half an hour since he didn't. No, never mind that. Okay, the, the June 10th, 1935, is the date that... Official date, we celebrate the beginning of Alcoholics Anonymous, when Dr. Bob got sober. Yeah, there He never drank since then. However, it seems probable that the actual date of Dr. Bob's sobriety may be a week later than it's generally supposed, June 17, 1935. The Journal of American Medical Association, ECTR, makes it clear uh, that their Atlantic City Convention starts on June 10th, 1935, not June 30th, Dr. Bob's account reports. Here's a probable timeline. Sunday, June 9, Dr. Bob starts drinking on the train, buys more booze upon arrival. Monday, June 10th, stays sober till evening. Tuesday, June 11th, checks out of hotel. Wednesday, June 12th, blackout begins. Thursday, June 13th, may have a ride back in Akron train depot. Friday, June 14th, picked up by nurse. Saturday, June 15th, drying out. Sunday, June 16th, another day of drying out. And Monday, June 17th, the last drink. So, that probably, AA actually started at 7, that makes any difference one way or another, but we were still continue to celebrate the 10th no matter what. People get mixed up on things, and they can understand that. But it's important to know that. These are facts. I, mean, it's just, I believe things, but facts are important. But here's here's what happened when AA began. I think I'll just read this to you. Dr. Bob came back from his drunk. Dr. Bob's taping taping off with... It was augmented with a diet of tomato juice, sauerkraut, and kawo syrup, corn syrup. <laughs> Believed to supply both vitamins and energy, plus a little beer to quiet his nerves. Bob and Bill shared one of the upper bedrooms that was large enough for two beds. I was in there just recently. And they, you take a tour through that house, you see it, two beds, and you see this happening. It's just exciting to be in that very room where this happened. Because I wouldn't be here, we wouldn't be here, this wouldn't have happened. During this crucial period, Early Monday morning, the day of the scheduled operation, Bill was awakened by the statement, "I'm going through with this." Bill inquired, "Well, you mean the operation?" Now, Doctor Bob had started an operation. He was a proctologist, and you know, he kind of worked on people's rear ends. And you, you, you don't want to be shaky where somebody's rear end. The scalpel see? And uh, and he said, "You mean the operation?" I you feel you calm down. You can do it. He said, said, said. He, said, he replied. He was going to perform the operation. Also, he's going to do what it takes to stay sober, gets sober, and stays sober. They fell back asleep. So he made a decision right there that he's going to do this thing. The operation was scheduled a few hours hence. And you see in the drama here? He's shaking. He's he, 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 like, to, you know, you cut this guy. The doctor was still shaking as Dr. Bob and Ann drove him to Akron City Hospital. But just before leaving the car, Bill gave him a, some beer and a goofball of vitriol to hopefully calm his erratic nerves. A misguided scalpel could end the life of the patient as well as his career. Bill and Ann returned to 855 Ardmore uh, and nervously listened for Dr. phone's message of success or not. Hours passed, but finally came the good news they were praying for. But more, hours, but, but, time, but more hours and dire anticipation arose as newly sobered uh, alcoholic had not returned. They feared the worst. But at last, he walked in the door, happily announcing he'd been simply busy mending fences. It means making amends to fellow doctors and associates. In other words, the program of action had finally begun. Up to that time, Dr. Bob simply had a fellowship, but, he had, but now he had a program of action. Now, what goes on in AA is a fellowship, is one part of it. There's another part of AA, which is not fellowship at all, it's a program of action, which is in 12 steps, okay? He made those amends. That means he was doing the Oxford group precepts and what they thought he should do, and he, was, he had nerve enough to do it. In those days, it took a lot, because it wasn't in those days like today, if you're an alcoholic, you're just a low-down bum. You're not somebody sick or not. nobody, you know, you could, could lose his practice, everything. But he was one to take, go to any length, and he started working the program of action so the program of action he tried the fellowship alone and it got him drunk see but the program of action and the fellowship together he never drank again the rest of his life Poor dr bob still had that mental obsession for a couple of years but still he didn't drink and so he he had a he had a release in that respect so this is this is the beginning of alcoholics anonymous so they're sober and uh well and uh, they they were going to uh have to find somebody to work with. Now, on the 28th day, about, of uh, June
2: 1935,
1: they went to town's hospital. And they called about having a drunk they could work with. And they said, uh, it's kind of comical, because he talked to one of the nurses, everybody knew how Dr. Bob was and he didn't think he did. He said, uh, we, got, we want to find a drunk. We, we think we found a re- way to recover from alcoholism. We want to work with this drunk. So she said to Dr. Bob, Well, Dr. Bob, have you tried it out yourself yet? <laughs> 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 and he said, Well, yes, I have. And uh, so he called to a few days sober. Uh, which goes to say you don't have to be sober for a long time to do 12 step work. And so here he goes. He goes to town, he goes to towns, uh, not town hospital, Akron City Hospital. And they meet this guy here, Bill Dotson, which is AA number
2: three.
1: They called his wife, Henrietta, first, and she said, uh, "Well, I don't think you can help him, but you try."
2: And uh, he was a
1: sad, bad case. he he had been he'd been in the hospital six times the last four weeks or something like that. Some terrible time. He just in and out of the hospital all the time. he beat up some of the nurses. They had him strapped down the bed at one time, and he was a lawyer. And he was a politician, a wonderful person when he's sober, he just went all haywire when he drank. And uh so they talked to him and he said, Oh, you folks can't help me. I'm 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 a goner, I am just too you know, I can't I, I drink before I get home when I leave the hospital. I'm no good. They said, Well that might be true, but you can help us stay sober. We need someone to work with. He said, Well, I guess it won't hurt anything, you go ahead and do what you want to do and he did it. They talked talked and Indeed, they stayed sober another day. They came back again. His wife was there. Her her name was Henrietta. I like Henrietta Dotson. And he said, there they are. They're the ones that know the answer. They know the answer. And they talk of him some more. And uh, the the conversation kept on. They probably described all they had in those days. They didn't have a six-step program, it was later on. Or, like, they didn't have an AA program. Well, no, AA wasn't going to take place, to the big book, until a long time later. But, that part of it. But they told him, the Oxford group, they probably told him the four tenets. I mean, the, the, the four absolutes. The way to remember the four absolutes is like spell H-U-L-P. Honesty, unselfishness, love, and purity. You're going to remember that. And they taught him these things. You could see that made sense. And also, the different, the different uh, tenets that Bill had accepted of the Oxford group. If you want to know what they are, I'd like to read them to you. an so X page XVI of all the editions of the big book, except the first one. And this is what it says. This is what the, probably the message they took to him. Though he could not accept all the tenets of the Oxford groups, this is Bill Wilson, he was convinced of the need for moral inventory Confession of personality defects, restitution of those harmed, helpfulness to others, a necessity and the belief in and dependence upon God. So that's what he was taught. This is what this is what made him get sober. Uh, before I tell the rest of the story, I want to jump ahead, because you might find this interesting. Those who've got fourth edition books go to page 263. And, uh, the ones who have, a uh, third edition, let's go to page 292. And if you want to follow me along, or you can know, just, just listen, it would be just fine, of course. Uh, here is Dr. Bob, a couple of years later, working with Earl Treat, when they had a six-step program, say. They didn't have a six-step You can see how these four tenets of the Ox Group fit into what's here. Uh, Wednesday in Dr. Bob's afternoon off, he had me down to the office. We spent three or four hours formally going through the six-step program as it was at that time. Get that? Three or four hours. Not three or four days, three or four Three or four hours, okay? The six steps were complete deflation, dependence and guidance from a higher power, moral inventory, confession, restitution, continued to work with other alcoholics. Dr. Bob read me through all these steps at the moral inventory I brought up with my bad personality traits or character defects such like as selfishness, conceit, jealousy, carelessness, intolerance, ill temper, sarcasm, and resentments. We went over these at great length, and then he finally asked me if I wanted to have these defects of character removed. I said yes, and we both met to death and prayed, each of us asking to have these defects taken away. The picture is still vivid. If I live to be a 100, it will always stand out in my mind. It was very impressive, and I wish every AA could have this benefit of this type of sponsorship today. This guy's name is Earl Tree, and He started AA in Chicago a few years later after that. After that. So that's an interesting thing. But how the tenants I'm trying to point a picture to you, how the tenets of the Ossie Group, the first century Christian fellowship, comes into the Alcoholics Anonymous, making up our 12 steps. The beginning our sixth step, eventually i will going to talk about it morphed into twelve steps. You probably know but but, uh, but right at that time, but when Doctor when, when Dr. Bill Dodge was here, there's just there's only the Oxford group, That's all he had. On the fourth of July, six days later, maybe seven days, whatever it was, he marched out of the hospital a free man, never to drink again. He goes back to being a lawyer and a politician. He was a wonderful person. He did a lot of 12-step work and stuff like that, you call it. But he would never call it 12-step. He was not very enthused when a few years later he wrote this book. He didn't care about it. He, didn't, he liked the oxygen. That's how he got sober. So he, didn't, he didn't like it. He didn't like the 12-steps. And you know, if you read the first printing, you read this book here, the first printing of the first edition of Big Book, Bill Dodson's not in here. It's kind of interesting, because he didn't want his story in there. He didn't believe in this too much. I so, but you get the second edition, 1955, there were 16, 20 of this, that's all we're done with. He dies in 1954, so in 1955, here comes the second edition up, and they had a tape of him talking about his life, you know, so they, 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 they typed that up. And they stuck it in the second edition, so he got the second edition without being, not even knowing about it. <laughs> I don't know what to think about them. That, that's what they did. <laughs> uh, so, now, there's, there's a story of Bill Dodson how he got started. Number a eight, number three. Probably that was the beginning of our first, <clears throat> first real, uh, first real movement into uh, be, 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 be actually a, 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 a group. I, I don't know if you call just Bill and Doctor. Some people call it just Bill and Bob the Gripper. I didn't tell you look at it, but then they had three. They had a group. There was a guy named Eddie. He never did get sober very good, but later on I think he did, but for years he didn't. And Eddie was with them too, and part of that. And he'd get drunk on and off. He was a young guy. He was mean when he got drunk. There was a story about Eddie. that you can read in Dr. Bob, the good old-timers. Dr. Bob was at work, at home with Ann. Eddie was there. They, they took drunks in their house. This is the first halfway house that ever happened in the world of alcoholics and at, at Dr. Bob's house, 855 work, And he got drunk, came in, and once he picked up a butcher knife, and he had Ann by the hair and going to cut her throat with a butcher knife. And she talks him out of it. And some of she she calls Doctor Bob. Doctor Bob comes home. They dated him, put him to bed, or whatever. And Doctor Bob was typical humor. You know, they had tuna fish for, for for lunch that day. He said, "You know, it must have been the tuna fish." Doctor Bob humor. <clears throat> but uh, there's another guy named Ernie who got sober that time. The seven month, the seven. He wrote a story in the big book, I guess anyway, okay, anyway, he was around it. again. But that's all sober. He wasn't he was sober in and out. Not too not too much was going on too good, but what were they doing in that day? Henrietta, they they were all Oxford group at that time. And they would go to Henry, T. Henry Williams' house on Wednesdays. There's a picture of it here. And uh and that's that's T. Henry Williams' wife Clarice. And uh they'd have Oxford Group meetings. They'd share do sharing with each other where they had been sinful and this and that and the other. And that's how they did. And maybe that's the beginning of our discussion meeting, and they gave it. They did all that. And they'd wake up in the morning, they'd have quiet meditation. Now, people started living with Bill. and Bob, uh, Bill Bill Wilson moved in with Dr. Bob. I forgot to tell you that. For that whole summer of 1935. Because he was still getting money from New York, from the Beard Company, up there for his play with that machine company. But uh, it didn't work out anyway, but he was still obligated to stay there they stayed there till late latter August so the time they wake up in the morning they do meditation a quiet time and, and they read the holy Bible and they read mostly Corinthians uh, 3 I think it was and and James and Sermon on the Mount out of the Bible these are the main things they this is what they were doing don't well, you can't talk about this religion right? well this is what they did don't make your own religion or not that's what they did they did it don't mean they didn't do it because you don't like it they did it and uh, so the, that, that's this way, and, and uh, matter of fact, uh, James is one of one of the uh, it works it really does. That's one of uh, that's one of, that's one that uh, Doctor Bob uh, Bill Wilson says he put in a big book on page eighty-eight. I mean, uh, this has definitely ought to do with our twelve steps. I'll get into that a little bit more later on, but. Uh, they talk to each other. They had a fellowship. They talk to each other. And they, they, they talk at three o'clock in the morning times. They just talk all the time. They just all visit each other. They had a real fellowship. This is where the program of action and the fellowships intertwine. You know, I are not having a fellowship talk about the ball game. And I, I go to meetings in my hometown, Meetings all over with a lot of people to go home. But uh, the ones that do hang around, they're talking about workplaces, the ball game, or something like that. I'm, I, I I come to A to talk about AA. I'm gonna talk about this death, what tradition I'm gonna talk about the next convention, I'm gonna talk about and I've got no one to talk to. Uh, sadly I go to this clubhouse and it's almost like a taboo subject to talk about this death. Tab- you know, you are out of place. Well it wasn't for them. They talked about the program of action. They talked about what was getting sober, they talked about God, they talked about religion talk about things. They, they were they were very serious people. Uh-huh. Well yeah. we pay a price in AA a lot of times I think, you know. And, uh, I won't get too much into that because it's a preacher, but nonetheless, we have price, and we lose, if we lose that spirit that they had, we lose a lot. We talked about responsibility last night, and what I brought up about responsibility was this. I think my major responsibility is to continue the talk that Bill Wilson had with Dr. Bob Smith on, on May 11th, 1930, Mother's, May 12th, Mother's Day, that, to continue that conversation. And uh that's what I come to AA for. I don't come to AA to, to have good times and just feel good. So there's nothing wrong with it. And I do talk about stuff once in a while, of course. But nonetheless, I think there's something very serious. We lose the spirit of AA like they had in those days. And that went on for many years. That spirit grew and grew. A newcomer comes to our AA meetings, and if that spirit is not there, that that gravity... That pulls him in, that magnetic pull that he, he doesn't understand you can't talk about because it it's, it's down your deep. A lot of times he goes back to the bar room because he doesn't have that feeling. I think it's my duty to try to maintain that spirit of alcoholic knowledge that they had during those early days. Not just those early days, but that early years gone. on. I, I'm making a point there about the history, how the history is very prevalent to what we're doing today, it's relevant to what we're doing today. We, we need very much to keep the spirit going, and we do a lot of places. I went to one of our fourth dimension meetings about two weeks ago, Thursday night. Ron P. has a meeting over here in in, uh, in Fairborn, And uh, 20 minutes afterward, there are about 35 people there. Uh, and uh, out in the parking lot, the meeting's up over 20 minutes, and there's still about 15 people talking. And an hour later, there were still ten of us out there talking about... the. And we we'll are talking about the big book, and you know, about Program of Action, about Christ Anonymous. I was just in heaven, you know, it's a wonderful thing. There are places like that, I like that. I grew up in California, that's what we talked about there. We go to Rex, talk about the Program of Action, it's exciting. How, how to help John or Mary, maybe, how you, back is... But, uh, so that's what I get to that, and I want to point I'm just not trying to get off the subject here, I'm trying to draw... Uh, the, the, the importance of history, what it has to do with happening now. What they were doing there was something wonderful. Because we grew. We had five people sober in thirty-five. We had 15 sober there in 1936. We had 40 people sober then to 1937. Uh, the next year we had 40 people sober. The next year we had... 100 people sober when he wrote the big book. Next year we had 2,000 sober and that jumped to 8,000 in one year. And 15 years after Alcoholics Anonymous started, uh, we, we had almost 100,000 people who could not not drink, could almost not drink. What a miracle that is, see? That was a spirit under that. Alcoholic is one drunk talking to another drunk from the heart. Not knowledge, not knowing a lot about anything. This, uh, this book is written for some drunk crawling out of the gutter you know, he might climb a gutter. <laughs> right? <laughs> Out of the ditch, I guess it was. Anyway, and and they can understand this. Thing. Simple book. There's nothing complicated about this at all. It's meant to be very good. Could be complicated, but they didn't make it that way. So, where are we at in history? Bill is there. He's sober. Dr. Bob's sober. Bill Dodson's sober. And Ernie Garbath is sober on and off. Ernie Garbath, I might not get into it later on. But he he thought he married Sue. That was Doctor Bob's adopted daughter. He never liked Ernie because that's he he's a phony. He probably was. He got he stayed drunk most of his life. A lot of terrible things happened with that marriage. But uh, let's go. Bill goes back to uh, Bill goes back to New York. The last of August, 1935. Bill goes back to New York, leaving Akron as it was. Three people, so two people sober, one on and off. Not much going on. So he goes back there. He goes to town's hospital this time, which is a little classier place than the where he failed so many times down to mission. And he meets this guy here, Hank Parkhurst. Hank Parkhurst is a near atheist. He don't like this God stuff at all. It's funny how God put that to be in first person in New York that he worked with and got so amazing. You know. And he was in the town's hospital. And uh, so he's sober. And then the very next version, the very next month, probably probably in November, this is October, I think this is probably November, it's not clear, is Fitz Mayo, John Henry Fitzborough Mayo. And uh, see, these are all mover and shaker people. This guy here, you read about the employer, to the employer, he wrote in the big book, you read to the employer in a big book? He wrote that, or it was ghostwritten. But anyway, he he, he was he hired and fired like 30,000 people. He fired a lot of people for being drunk
2: and all that. One of
1: them committed suicide one time, he fired and so on. And so he's a movement-shaker guy. This guy here is a religious guy. But I'm going to stop right here and point out something else to us. Let us think over what we've gone through this day. The hand of God seemingly, me or some kind of higher power is making this thing work. First of all, we have, we have William James, you know, the father of modern psychology. What a, what an interesting title. Then we have Dr. Carl Jung. Everybody knew who Dr. Carl Jung was back then. Very, very important person. And then who's the other guy? A millionaire guy, uh, Roland Hazard, multi-million guy, and... And then he tells me to Ebby Thatcher. Ebby Thatcher ain't hay. I mean, his father played golf with the President of the United States. And he was well-known, very, very wealthy, made wheels for the railroads, and uh, had a big factory. And, and so Ebby, and then Bill Wilson gets in the game, and what a mover and shaker he was. Uh, he was just just exactly the right kind of person to make AA go. Everybody couldn't do like Bill Wilson did. Egomaniac like he was. He just go get her and play, uh, plus everything else. And he was a wonderful person. All these things come together. Then, then, then we get into, uh, we get into Akron where we are now. Well, I haven't told you this yet. But how the Akron, how the auction group got to Akron to start with, because this was not going to happen unless the auction group is in Akron. A couple of years before Bill got there, the Firestones, Harvey Firestone, had a drunken son named Bud Firestone. A guy named Jim Newton, who was an Oxford group member, worked with him and fixed him off of his alcoholism. And uh said somehow they they had the Firestones for had this plant they, they set him up to be Jim Newton to be vice president of of the uh, young guy to be president of Firestone there in in uh Akron and so they, they, so let's get the, let's, let's take the Akron group here at the Mayflower Hotel, which they did, had a big convention that started AA in Akron. That's where T. Henry Williams, and then had their meeting on Wednesday night. She started So, this all happened. What's that? A real mover and shaker, Harvey Firestone. What, what, what bigger would you want? You know? And then, the, 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 the Cyberlands, millionaires. I mean, there they get again. It's people, movers and shakers, people. This didn't just happen half-hours. So you can see the hand or something but putting this thing together like a puzzle. You want it to happen. And uh that that has to do with the, the title of the book I wrote. It's a pre-AA history. A study of the events between the years 26 and 35 which culminated into the birth of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so we had these, these boobers and shakers all put together. And to put this together, it's hard to deny that uh, this is just... It just happened because it just fell in that way. No. Can't prove any of it, naturally, but it just, it just makes sense. And I, want to, I always like to point that out when I talk about these things. Well, here's Bill in New York. Uh, he's gone to Oxford Group, 1935, 1936. He has all these people coming to his house. As a matter of fact, Lois is working, Leo. She'd worked at Macy's for a long time, but she worked, moved to Leosis because it was closed for him. And, uh, Ebby moves in with Bill at 182 Clinton Street. I went there one time to take a picture of it just for fun, near the Brooklyn Bridge. Something to do if you ever get, you ever get to New York and It's worthwhile to take that trip and see that. You can't go in or nothing, but I mean, you just see it from a distance and take a picture of it. And, uh, it's like, it's worth it's sold recently like like a million and a half dollars so it's like it's it's like a New York just
2: they they connected on
1: each other and just go straight up there's four one below and three above I think it was something like that and uh, so I think the drunks stayed down in the basement place and they lived upstairs like that and they had a service on the top floor I think it was something like I forget how it was they they had servants these are not poor people and uh, so. They're having all these drunks there, and there's adventures happening as the drunks live there. One one drunk found a bottle of uh syrup, maple syrup. Of course, he thought of whiskey and drank it. <laughs> Another guy got got caught downstairs. He climbed in. He was he's locked out of the house. He climbed to the basement and fell into the Coal bin, they had coal bins back in the day, you know, all filthy dirty in that. <laughs> and I think he was naked or something like that, and Lois had to cover him up to get him upstairs and stuff like that. And, uh, all these adventures happened, they'd argue and they'd fight and about things, about different things. Some were staying sober, and uh, not a lot. And, uh, then one really sad thing happened, I don't know, I think this would be 37 or something. One fellow, Bill and Lois were gone, and this one guy, he was a lawyer I think too, but he, uh, got Lois' fur coat and sold it for made to get drunk on. It. And, uh, felt so guilty that he came, when they came home they found him there with his head in the oven and the gas was turned on, and he was dead. He
2: committed suicide, you know. So that's uh,
1: some of the sad thing that happened.
2: That uh,
1: there were a lot of battles,
2: but the point is that
1: they kept running on going like a the steamboat. They didn't stop, they had nothing to stop them. Bill Bill's personality he had the kind of personality I'll show him I'll show him all. He always felt that way. Thank God he did you know well, how many people would have given up at that point you know death, everything else happened but they're
2: going on they're
1: still they're going to the Oxford group. they're going to Stewart's restaurant afterward, but they're not getting too long well- well too long. Finally, Bill starts a meeting on Tuesday night. In his house at 182 Clamp Street, and the Oxford Group's aren't liking that very much. You're not being maximum. The Oxford Group's don't want to work with a bunch of drunks. They want to. Work, they want to change the whole world and change everything. And uh, so you're not being maximum, Bill. And it turns out eventually he left the Oxford Group. It kind of both ways. And uh, Bill didn't like the four absolutes. He liked the four ideas behind the absolutes, but absolutes are too much for any alcoholic. Absolutely honest, absolutely pure, absolutely this, absolutely. You can't be alcoholic. Can't be absolutely. He didn't like that anyway. A lot of things he didn't like, and uh, and they didn't like him either because he was he was he was not being maximum. He wasn't out trying to change the world. He was trying to change these alcoholics. They didn't like him having that meeting at his house, so he finally left there. So at that point, everything exclusive was there at his house. Bill finally decide, Well, maybe it's time to make some money, and uh, he starts looking for jobs. He went to Detroit, and on that trip, he comes down to Akron, Ohio, and he has a conference, with Doctor Bob, and they realize, my goodness, we got uh, there's 40 people sober, 40 people, and half of them more than a year. That was big, was big back then. My goodness we've got something here really wonderful. We should have, Bill thinks big, you know, he said, we should have a hospital for drunks, And we should have an employment agency for these grunts. And we should have people out carrying the message, messengers out carrying the message all around. And maybe we can have a book or something like that about it, you know. And, uh, they didn't like that. I was two big shot uh, people in Akron. They said, well, Bill, maybe, you know, but, uh, well, why don't you go back to New York and raise the money? You know all those rich people. So Bill said, "Yeah." So he goes back to New York, talks to his rich friends. And they thought, "Well, the Salvation Army's probably more important to give our money to than some bunch of drunks." And you know, we, you know what We about the Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts. They wouldn't—they wouldn't know. They said they, they didn't get a penny out of them. He didn't know what to do. He was very despondent. Bill was always having depression. He told his brother-in-law. Very interesting story here. Brother-in-law, Leonard, Leonard, Leonard Strong, Lois's brother, he was a doctor. And he said, you know, you do need money. I have an idea. Now this comes from tapes I've heard. I knew... Other people tell the story differently, but he said, I knew a girl I went to school with, and I heard she worked for the Rockefeller Foundation. Maybe I could get a hold of her. And somehow she got a hold of this guy here, William Richardson. And it all turned out, and lo and behold, Bill was invited to come to the Rockefeller uh, office. And he goes way up on the elevator, gets up there, way up high. And Mr. Rockefeller wasn't there, but he talked to this fellow here, and maybe one other, maybe, maybe, I'm just him. And so they talked to him, and he said, well, we'll try to set up a luncheon for you. And we think it's a good idea, and I think we could get this across. So Bill is sitting there, and he's sitting in this chair. He writes this. He said, there I am, sitting in a chair just recently vacated by John D. Rockefeller, Jr., <laughs> boy he's getting something he's happy now he's gonna get some money to do all these things he sees hospitals coming up and all kind of money of course knowing bill he's taking a lot of money pocket along with it over what the heck but i mean that he's got he's got big ideas see we need bill wilson we need somebody like him to make any work so he uh he goes to luncheon they have a luncheon and at this luncheon let's see this is a picture of these two non-alcoholic people that helped us out so much Okay, here comes a luncheon with the Rockefeller Associates. Rockefeller's got his associates with him. Okay, Bill Wilson's there, Dr. Silkworth is there, a few members from New York, and Akron, Uh, I think Dr. Bob was there, yeah, Dr. Bob was there. The backers are moved and impressed by the fellowship's work. And boy, Bill's thinking all this money's coming in, man. These people are wealthy, and Rockefeller's got... And if you know anything about the Rockefellers, they reached a point where they had to give money away. They wanted to, they wanted to get a good name in the world, and a lot of people were mad at the old man Rockefeller. And but they're were, they were giving money away all over the place. But it had to be wisely spent.
2: And uh,
1: however, it's point out that money could spoil the group's purpose. Meeting the meeting reaps welcome enthusiasm, moral funds, but no funds. Mister Albert Scott says this: Wouldn't money spoil this thing? Oh, Bill must have really been disappointed. Just disappointed. All that, all that going on, he goes home, and he he had to feel awful bad about that. But what happened is, they sent a guy, Frank Amos. Picture anyway. Here's a picture of Rockefeller. And uh, Rockefeller Jr. And uh, so Frank Amos was a associate. Had to do with the funds. And they sent him in February of 1935 down to Akron. And he went to tea in the Williams house and he went to the meetings they had there. He talked to these 40 alcoholics that were sober. And he comes back with an absolutely glowing report. Why this is wonderful. This is first century Christianity. These people are doing wonderful. They're staying sober. And he recommended that they be given $50,000. See? $50,000 in those days. Uh, that would be, uh, well, it'd be eight hundred thousand dollars a day. Let's say close to a million dollars. That would be a down payment for a hospital, this and that, and here whole thing building Bill must have felt great about that. And Mr. Rockefeller hears about it, and he makes a decision. And Bill Wilson, he he made a he took a decision that 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 saved Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, indeed, too much money would ruin this thing. So instead of giving him give, give the fifty thousand dollars, he gave him five thousand dollars, which is eighty thousand dollars a day, which was enough to pay off the interest of, to pay off Doctor Bob's house and give them thirty dollars a week to live on, which is hundred dollars a week to live on, and so on like that. So this is where they could start writing the book. Well, with that low amount of money, the hospital is out. The uh, the uh, idea of uh, having uh, employment agencies out. There's one idea left, it was a book. It would be, be the big book of alcoholics and nonsense turns out to be. They didn't know what they are going to call it. So Bill starts writing that in uh, somewhere about uh, somewhere about uh, March or April, 1938. He wrote it backwards. He wrote, uh, actually, he wrote uh, uh, Bill's story number two chapter number two and there is a solution chapter number one anyway this is not necessarily going to be he didn't know what kind of book it was going to be but he writes this out in quite a few pages i got it at home i didn't bring it with me I
2: probably should have. but
1: uh so he takes it so he's uh got this typed out and done over and again and again but this is to send out to people to get money off of people so they get more money they could see he's going to write a book. And indeed, some people did offer some money. One got $1,500, uh, but they'd have to own the book if they did or, or be a partner. And They decided, no, it's got to belong to us ourselves. We can't do it. Dr. Silkworth wrote some in, in, uh, this is the beginning of the big book being written in July of 1938. Uh, Dr. Silkworth wrote some stuff for them. And then after that comes along, uh, Jim Scott. He's a, he's an author, and he's a, he's a newspaper guy, actually. He, he helps to write stories. So he writes, all these acrid people write their stories, he help them write their stories. They got a lot of stories. And this is, this is like July, August, September, October, November, into December, and Bill's beginning to write this book. And, uh, he's coming along, and, uh, I want to show you what it kind of looks like. This is handwritten. He'd sit in bed. Bill would n- never stand up when he could sit down. He would never sit down when he could lay down, says Lois. So he lay on his back, writing this stuff on a yellow pad. Then he takes his office over in New Jersey, and Ruthie Hawk, who was his who, who secretary at the time, would type it up like that. Sometimes he would just dictate, and she'd type, and stuff like that. That, that was the beginning of our book. And uh, so... Uh eventually by December a lot of the stories were kinda of in and everything and uh let's see I'm gonna show you something here. I want you all to come after the when the break time comes and uh we will be too, not too long. Uh, I'm gonna walk around and just show you what happened. He wrote the, he lay in bed, he got to chapter five, and they had six steps. That time, we talked about those before. Said, There's too many loopholes there. These drunks are getting out, and getting drunk. I've got, i got, we got to close it up. We got to make more. So he starts writing. He prays to God. I think this is important. When I, I've never taken anybody through the steps. I've taken a lot of people through steps, but I never have them do without doing what I call spontaneous writing or automatic writing. That means you pray to God and just write down. I won't get into it a little too complicated to talk about right now, but that's what he did that. If this comes from the Oxford group. Copernicus did it 500 years ago, as a matter of fact. you know, it, 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 People, it's not old to pray to God and write down what God told you. It's not, but that's what he did. God, please help me, he says. And all at once, this is important, six steps turned into 12 steps in 20 minutes. Boop, like that. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And so he had twelve steps. He showed it to the people there at his house and they threw a fit. Well, how would you feel if somebody come back to Barnes and say, We got twenty four steps now? <laughs> <laughs>
2: so
1: anyway, but I'm gonna walk around just to show you people. Uh, and I'd like to look at it in detail. It takes weeks this is a wonderful book. It's called The Book the Book that started it all. It's out of Hazleton, uh for sixty dollars. Uh it's a gift to me, I don't have to but uh uh, actually it's, uh, Amazon for around 30 bucks. So goodbye. And, uh, but I'm gonna show you what happened. He wrote that, and they, they, they got a lot of disapproval. They sent, they printed 400, uh, mimeograph copies, sent to people, see people's ideas. And they came back on people had a lot of ideas about changes. A guy named Dr. Howard and some, several others had to do with changing this stuff here. So, but I'm gonna show you here. How many changes were made? Bill Wilson, supposedly, made a the to that. But other people have a lot to do with it. Just look at that. He
2: not look at that. Changes came. All smashed out. Two crookies, there's two crookies. What you crooky me. two men the office. They, them up off. they say, Wait A Also, work. Uh, was a man from, uh, uh Tim Rowe, right? and he eight people I think that's God. i real about that. he the That's a good But no, this right the same Bill was the himself, it's kind of a mistake. You know, there's more to it than that. God's other things that him. So Bill Wilson had the idea, he said, that thou must pain a drunkenness you get drunk, you must to happen. And they say, oh, Bill, you can't tell an alcoholic, that that's what's what right what You can't
1: do that. Instead of saying, this is what you must do, and this is what we did. And today, the big book of alcoholics, now as I say, is not a book of prescription. What you have to do is a book
2: of description about what they did. It says, you must, 72 times, 300 years
1: ago, maybe, that must be worth all the cash they took, then you must do these things. And that just a different life than other people's numbers. So you're kind of tell me No, I'm not showing you
2: how to show you what they did. You understand they're to it. I'm not. You And,
1: uh, you know, and getting to the and thing there to show you how regular things have changed. Most of us know that on page most of us know that on page uh, eighty-six of the big book it talks about what we do before we go to bed at night. We've been angry and this and that and the other and different things, you know. Well, that, that wasn't what Bill wrote. Bill wrote for that sentence to show you how things change so dramatically. Other than just what I just told you about, you'll recognize this when I read it to you. Those of you, a big books. It says here, when we retire at night, we construct review our day where we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid. Well, what Bill wrote was not that at all. And here he wrote, when we go to when we wake or we wake in the morning. Uh, we, we we review our day before where we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid. They said, "Oh no, you can't put that. Get that too groupy, too groupy, too groupy. You can't get it out of there." So what they did, they changed it from in the morning like he wrote, put it at night. That's why it says that. And I spent many many years trying to explain why Bill put good at night first, then day, then in the morning, then the day. Why? Well, it's nonsense. It's just that they, they changed. Bill it wasn't Bill's idea at all. But it's interesting how that the sway uh, a lot of people had to do with writing this book and I think it comes from the powers above that this would have happened because if Bill would have had his way like that the big book would have never have sold the, the phrase God as we understand him would not have been in there see yeah.
2: That's
1: a, that comes from Jim Burwell
2: people like that yeah.
1: we're lucky So I, I keep on with it and I'd like to give a history talk I keep on about how that uh, there's more to it than just, just Bill Wilson wrote something worked wonderful and everything like that. So uh the big book was finished and printed. And uh let's see if I've got some more information here before I type in literally stuff and then I don't even read it. I'll read I'll, I'll read some of this to you here. I'm repeat a little bit. Nineteen thirty nine nearly one hundred people saw most people think it think it's eighty six actually the drafted book and stories were completed. 400 copies were distributed for evaluation. Joe Warden was credited with getting the New York Fellowship to favor the name Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, he was a mental patient, had a lot of money. They had him in because he might get a big donation out of him. And he was sitting in the back of the room, so goes the story. And he's saying one of the names that floated around was, uh, was Alcoholics Anonymous, but they, did, they weren't in favor of it. They had another thing. He sat in the back of the room and said, Anonymous Alcoholics, Anonymous Alcoholics, Anonymous Alcoholics, Anonymous. And he said, well, that means that's what we should call it. And so they called Alcoholics Anonymous. So goes the story. Who knows how true it is, but uh, this, this speaker out of Texas said that. Major change produced by Dr. Howard, throwing down the mess to we ought, what we ought, what we did. The big book tender changed from a prescription to a description. This is what we did, in other words. Tom Muzell from Collier's Magazine, this paid three hundred eighty dollars, multiply it by twenty, probably, to edit the manuscript. He shortened it dramatically. Ray Campbell, an artist concept, and I had that. I
2: thought, I don't have it. I had the cover. Anyway, he, he did
1: a, but he he made this cover here, I and mean, he, he had a man walking cover, which is first, but this would made the of this one here, called the Circus Cover. He's the one that did that. April 10th, the big book is published, not 5,000 copies like you hear, but it's 4,730 copies, uh, and uh, at this time, your bill and Lois have to vacate their home at 182 Clinton Street, and... They were homeless. They were broke and homeless. These rich people that all their lives were, you know, wealthy, and now they're completely broke, sober, and nowhere to live. One time they're sitting crying on the, on, on the steps of the Grand Central Station. Where are they going to sleep next? And they're, 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 and they stayed at Hank Parker's house, and then many, many other alcoholics for the next two years allowed them to stay in their little residences on a couch or somewhere like that. And Lois kept on working at the at lower lower lower, lower uh, at the, at the department store that uh, there wasn't enough money to go around. They barely could make it. Eventually, in 1941, a clubhouse came around, and uh, they, they lived there and finally got their own home. But uh, the last thing I want to tell before we'll take a little short break here. February 8th, things are not doing so hot. Big books not selling. Well, oh, it's been—it's—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, forty—it's—it's uh, it's the big book's not quite a year past yet. They're not making any money on the big book. Rockefeller's keeping an eye on what's going. This is where we can hand it to Don D. Rockefeller Jr. He kept track of what was going on. He knew it wasn't going so good, so he himself invited a dinner. And uh February 8, John Rockefeller held a dinner for a anti-union league club in New York City. Seventy-five out of the 400 invited guests attended. Nelson Rockefeller hosted attendance of his ill father. Uh, the uh, dinner produced much favorable national publicity and raised uh, $2,200, be $36,000 a day, from the attendees and $1,000 from Rockefeller. And the dinner guests contributed about $3,000 a year after 1945 when they were received donations as well as income from sales of the big book, asked to stocks. The AA said, Don't send us any more, we got too much, we don't want them anymore. And uh, the, the Alcoholics Foundation from this dinner came an influx of good publicity worldwide and they paid Rockefeller back every penny of that money. We finally paid him back. So we didn't we didn't want to run that. That's a wonderful thing about they it. It showed our, our integrity that we have. And things started going better financially. In nineteen the first clubhouse it was rented in three thirty four and a half west twenty fourth street in New York City for a hundred dollars a month, one thousand six hundred and forty dollars a day. It was forming me the illustrators club and uh then things started happening out in Texas. We started growing and growing and growing, and as i m- mentioned before, we really really grew fast and uh so we've got things going pretty well Akron's going well, Cleveland's going well uh so one thing that made things grow, um, Hank P got drunk. Hank Parker's got drunk, and he died drunk not too long after that. And he, uh, he, had, they had a lot of arguments. Too much to get into here. But here's one, th- one of the things that helped. Several things that helped us grow so fast. We grow like a million miles an hour. The Cleveland Indians baseball star Rolly Hensley Hensley had his anonymity broken. He he caught for Bobby Feller for the Cleveland Indians nineteen forty World Series. And he was a very famous person, but he kept getting drunk all the time and and his name would get in the paper. But he joined AA and he had a year of sobriety and told everybody about it and, that, and a lot of people came to AA because of that. And and uh, he did later personal appearance in forty two and forty three caused influx of new members. And by 1941, we had 2,000 members. And Jack Alexander, a uh, Saturday Evening Post article was published March 1st, 1, 1941. And that one year, we jumped, we jumped all the way from 2,000 members to 8,000 members. Four times in one year. Woo! Cool. Wow. And reprinted the article became the favorite pamphlet. It remains today. And then uh, went over, uh, and that... In 1941, it says over 6,000 inquiries were sent to New York office because of this article. And, uh, so, and that was the end of the first printing, and the second printing was 19, uh, 1955. And, uh, that's what I have, because that's when I came in. Because uh, I came in in, in, 70, I came in 75, but the second edition was still in print at that time. That's why I, I my first one was one
2: of those. And, uh,
1: Here's something interesting. Title page text changed from one hundred men to more than two. Here's a title. And uh we'll take a break and I show you this part here. Which I think is important. It says here the story of how more than one hundred men have recovered from Alcoholism. And that's the first printing. Six, and the next printing came out two years later, and some of the ladies, you know, they, they're not going to like that. So now it says men and women. Then uh, the next one they have more than a thousand, two thousand, three thousand, four thousand, so on like that as time went on. Now it says many thousand have recovered. But, but more important than that, even, i like to point out, you see this in italics, the story, the story uh, Was it this in It means it's important. It's important. Because this is a textbook, it's also a storybook. This is a text storybook. It's not a thou must. It's, it, it, out of pain and drunkenness, it's, it's a storybook of this what we did. And I think it's this book, uh, once again, this book is a, a description rather than a prescription. Bill Wilson wouldn't have had it that way. But did. So that, we'll have a short break if you don't mind, and come back and, uh, and uh, we'll close at 4.30. Okay. Let's jump ahead to Cleveland, Ohio, and Akron. Here's uh, one of my heroes in AA, who's Clarence Snyder. Pass uh, this around. Dr. Bob was his sponsor. Uh, Clarence got sober on the 11th day of February 1938. If you get a chance to listen to any Clarence Snyder leads, it's worthwhile listening to He's just a wonderful speaker, very enthusiastic, and if it wouldn't have been for his antagonistic attitude toward Bill Wilson, he might have been tri-founder number three, says Nell Wing, Bill's secretary. Uh, But he's very outspoken. Didn't care much for traditions, didn't care much for a lot of things, but he helped a lot of people and really helped A.A. get started. If you do hear his lead, uh, he, at one point of his, he was a smart guy. He was a banker at times. i show what kind of people we get in AA, but nonetheless, at one time, his job was limited to, in New York, people who had trucks back in those days, back in the, back in the 30s, would have somebody watch the trucks, they wouldn't get stolen. he had to watch the trucks, and this time he'd make enough money that he'd get paint thinner and pour it through bread and drink that. That's that's the kind of a drunkard he was. I I guess it's one step lower than Skid Row almost. I don't know. But that's that's how bad he got. He comes back to Akron, Ohio, back to Cleveland's hometown. His wife doesn't, they're all trying to get rid of him. They can't figure out how to get rid of him. And so they thought, well, they heard about this doctor down there in Akron, Ohio, Dr. Bob Smith, fixing these drunks. So uh, they sent him down there to work, and this time he's all He's been awful, a terrible drugs, really sick, imaginary things. And I know when I got sober, I was full of imaginary things. I mean, people would die, and I'd think I think I I should have tapped the table three times. If they wouldn't have died. And like I thought I was in control of things. And I was, that is a fear I got an AA, and he uh, he met Doctor Bob, and he must have been kind of like I was because there was a murderer up in Cleveland. He saw his picture in a paid newspaper, and the guy had some resemblance to Dr. Bob Smith. And when he met Dr. Bob, his mind, well, this is that murderer up there. He's going to murder me. That's the way he was thinking. I mean, this uh, is the idea of Clarence's uh, mind, and maybe some of our minds when he first got sober and still hallucinating and all these kind of things. And, and uh, so, uh, he went to Dr. Bob's hospital, and he was up there through it. And uh, these times in AA, people would come to you, Alk AAs would come to you, maybe they were in a gutter three three or, three or four months ago, but they'd always be wearing a suit, tie, maybe a Homburg, nicely dressed, and two at a time, and they'd talk to you about AA. They wouldn't tell you how they got sober, they just said they got sober. It wasn't AA then, it was the Oxford group,
2: 1938. And uh, cause
1: they, We weren't AA actually until the Big Book Group, so but they told how that... Uh, and, He'd be very impressed, they stayed sober, and it was about the fifth or sixth day, and that's all he knew,
2: and
1: uh, Dr. Bob came in, and said, young fella, you ready to get out of here? And he said, Dr. Bob always called me young fella, I was 35 years old, and he lived the like way I told you he lived, he said, I guess I had enough. 35 years old, I was a young fellow back in those days, just the idea of a thing for life. And, uh, oh, well, he said, yeah, you know, he wants to get out, and, run. and he said, uh, you believe in God? What's that got to do with it? It's got everything to do with it. Well, I guess I do. No, you do you don't? Yes, I do. You know how to pray? No. Get on your knees. No. No, I mean, get on my knees. Now, Dr. Bob's a proctologist. He's got these long fingers, he says. And he's going to his gowns and open the back. You know, and he's scared to death what's going to happen. But then, but he got down there, and, uh, you're not I like, No, I guess you don't. You just repeat after me. So he repeated after me, after doc, what Dr. Bob said. And only then was he allowed to go to T. Henry Williams' house and get served with the rest of the people. The name was a bunch of grumps that they had in that day. He did that. And, uh, he got sober. He stayed sober. Never drank again. It didn't take him very long. He's out twelve stepping all over the place. He'd go to bars and pull people off the bar. He'd do all kinds of things, just things we don't do today, but that's the way he was. He, he, he. Uh, this one lady, he tells in one of his talks. You just got to hear his tapes when you get a chance. He's got. He made lots of them. Um, he was this drunk lady. He was twelve stepping her. And she was in a restaurant, a spaghetti joint, where they had beer, I guess, or they have, But anyway, she was in there and she was drunk. And uh, the, the waiter came over and she throwed spaghetti all over the waiter. Of course they called the police and they took her to jail. And guess who else they took to jail. He took Clarence to jail too <laughs> they were with her. So that's some of the things that happened to him. And uh he go to he'd go to places like in those days People would take over vacant houses. There'd be a bunch of drunks laying on the floor. This one guy's laying there. He couldn't even move. He was so bad off. And somehow, he got the guy's name, and this is the length he would go to. And he took off, and he went out to this guy's mother, that lived some distance away, and, 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 and got $50 off her somewhere, or whatever amount it was. To go to town, to go to the hospital down in Akron, Akron City Hospital, Dr. Bob to work on him. Cost bit that money to go to him. I don't want to work there. Anyway, she had money hidden in the mattress. He takes his money, gets his drunk off the floor, gets to Dr.
2: Bob's house. He,
1: this kind of stories like that. They go to any length. He was a real 12-stepper. I
2: mean, something like that.
1: All his life he 12-stepped. He would take people to the steps in two days. And at the end of his life, he would be down to, he went down to Florida, uh, somewhere in the northern part of Florida. I think right now. Were they living in Florida by now? No, okay. Don't make any difference. Anyway, But he'd be there, and he'd take people, not so much newcomers to the steps, people who'd been around for a long time to the steps. And this one guy came all the way from London over to help. He said, well, uh, may I help you? He said, what length are you willing to go to to get sober? And the guy kind of stammered around. He said, well, you can get right back here and go back to London. I can't work with you. You're not willing to go to any late. If he didn't say that, he wouldn't work with you. Dr. Bob was that way, too. He said, be careful. People aren't ready to go. They can get you drunk. Because everybody's new back in those days. So they they were scared of newcomers. They were scared to death. I, know, I heard Norm, Norman talk. He got sober in 1939. I heard him give this talk in at, 1939. Uh, at, uh, in 1978 at Akron. I was just over three years but I heard you talk there. And he said that he came into AA he tried to borrow a nickel off of somebody. He said, You get out of here, you bum. You don't ever come back. They kicked him out. You're in a mooch. And he went home and he said, I'm going to get a gun. I'm going to kill everyone. No? I'm going to kill their wives too, and their whole family. I'm going to kill them all. No, I'm gonna get sober and sober, He never drank again. <laughs> you
2: know?
1: But that's that. That's, but that's the way they were in those days. They didn't. They didn't mess around. I mean, they, they were scared. They're actually, scared because they, 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 they said, "If I weren't serious, girl, can I take?" A...? That's
2: just
1: the way they were. Everything's new back in those days. Well, because Clarence, the big book came out the tenth day of April, 1939. One month later, the eleventh day, something dramatic happened. Now, Clarence got a job for the Ford Motor Company selling cars. He's just a good Ford salesman. They gave him two Fords to use. He had two, two cars. And he'd take his cars, and he'd take drunks out of Cleveland, take them 30 miles down the road to Akron to T. and Williams' house on a Wednesday night, and they, they were doing well, and they didn't help. Well, the priest up there said to to the drops, he said, you can't go down with those Protestants and tell all you're supposed to tell them the priest. He said, You'll be excommunicated, you keep going. And so they couldn't go anymore. And Clarence went down and told his sponsor, Dr. Bob Smith, he said, Doctor Bob, we're we're gonna to have to change things about it. he said, Dr. Bob says tough. We can't change what the oxygen does. And he told his sponsor, he said, I'll show you what's tough. I'm gonna to go up tomorrow night, next Thursday night, on the eleventh day of of May I'm going to start a, a group at 2345 Stillman Road, and it's going to be for alcoholics only and their wives, and non-alcoholics aren't allowed to come at all. No ox group members there was. Oh, that's a effect. fit. You said they almost had a big fistfight the, the next time the bunch, bunch of came up from Akron, they're going to tear the place up. And all in the name of God, you know, nothing happened, but yet it got started. There were 13 of them to begin with. They, and how that got started is this. Go back to Akron City Hospital. This guy here, Abby Goldrick, was a lawyer. Smart guy, big shot. And lawyers don't run around with to cars, sales cars. They, they don't run those kind of people at all. He, he didn't like him, Clarence. But Clarence got him put in the hospital down there anyway, through his wife. And so here so goes the story. Clarence goes to 234. Well, he's in the hospital down in Akron. Clarence goes over to his wife and sneaks around and gets his wife to allow him to have a meeting in his house. So he gets out, unbeknownst to him, and They start having an AAV right in his house. <laughs> and they have 13 people. And it grew, and they fought, and everything else, like people do, but it stayed. And then they had more and more and more. It grew so big, it grew so big, that, they had to have a big tea. The Borden, the, the Borden was a billionaire guy. Had a, they used his house in near proximity, or also on a Thursday night? I think they had a big argument. Really, I think they kept Clarence out. Clarence said I got kicked out of the meeting I started. I think that's what happened. But he started another meeting. Then the Orchard group started, and then another meeting. And they started growing. Now, what were they doing different? They had a spirit. They he would take they give the newcomer get a big book in one hand and a Bible in another hand. That's the way they that's the it was back in those days, like it or not. That's the way they did. And they were very, very serious. And I read to you already how Dr. Bob took people through the steps.
2: And this list
1: of things, you had a list of character defects like that, and then you different you went on, it's all the way. Claret did the same thing. he got one person that people started coming in. I told you about the the plane dealer started the, Akron, the, the Cleveland Plain Dealer started sending uh, articles out about, uh, about how wonderful A was, Raleigh Hemsworth did this, this, that, all kind of different things happened, and they were just going by leaps and bounds. And before long, little Cleveland, Ohio had four times as many people as New York and Akron put together because of what he was doing. They did things fast. And people poured in, they didn't know what to do with these people poured in. People with three weeks sobriety were helping another people with the steps. They got it so simple. This is a very simple program. It worked, it crew, it crew. The excitement was there. And I'd like to read something to you about those days. My gosh, this is a wonderful book here about Dr. Bob and the good old timer. Page two hundred, you start off in here, and you read sudden growth in Cleveland. It's too much to read here, but I want to read this one one page at page two sixty-one that tells us something here. About some things up
2: a little bit here, about what was going on there. Okay.
1: This ends what well, I told you. I got all these people sober, and everything's wonderful. This is why they had the first AA uh, 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 convention in Cleveland, because uh, because they'd grown so fast. You'd think it'd have it in New York, but it was in Cleveland because of this. See? But he says this. Meetings in Cleveland have evolved somewhat differently. Those in Ackwood, we opened with an audible prayer, said Clarence Snyder. The speaker, who was chosen four weeks in advance, spoke for 45 minutes, then we closed with a Lord's prayer. See, that started way, way back. Prayer. Then we would reopen for informal comments, questions, and so forth. The total meeting might go on anywhere from one and a half to two hours. No smoking was allowed in the first part of the meeting, only in the informal part. That's a trouble, Clarence said. They take it so casually today. I think a little discipline is necessary. I think AA was more effective those days. Records in Cleveland show that 93% of us who came never had a drink again. I'll read this again. Records in Cleveland show that 93% of those who came to it never had a drink again. Wow. When I discovered that people had slips in AA, it really shook me up. Today it's also wired down so much, anyone can wander in now. Well, you see, as I told you, you didn't just wander into AA then, I don't know if right along in the big dirt. but you had, you had to show that you were serious or you ain't going to get in. And That's probably why they had such a wonderful, high uh, thing, you know. The big book tells us on page XX, it says, says, uh, the ones who really tried, the ones who really tried 50% got sober once and remained that way. Well, really tried means, it yeah, didn't mean just wandered in. You show me where I'm an alcoholic or not, you know. I see this all the time today, you know, well. Uh I, I know that when Indianapolis I wrote the history of Indianapolis this guy Gordy Sheeran was visited by this guy who came out of Cleveland to get a taste he'd been sober for two years and uh, he said uh, I understand you're an alcoholic and Gordy Sheeran said well maybe I am and maybe I'm not Gordy Sheeran he said either you're not, you are or you're not whichever <laughs> well, the conversation's over you know and oh yeah well, went on but that's the way they were. I'm not saying that's what we ought to be doing now, but I'm just saying what they did now.
2: Not, this is not, good. not what ought to be, but what did happen.
1: And uh, the Clarence
2: uh, was a
1: great good and started things all over. And then things started happening all around. Uh Raleigh Hemsley, wrong uh, at time I told you about already, you know, about being an AA. Now, there are no traditions back then. Traditions are not going to be written until 1946. This is 41, 42, they're not going to be accepted by eight or 1950, many years in the future. But, uh, so, there's no tradition holding my back. And so, so he's going around telling all these people, and people born aid because of all and history, it, it really works. Well, Bill Wilson started, so he started doing the same thing. He got his picture of the papers and everything, and getting talks all over and so on. He finally saw it wasn't the right thing to do, but yet, this is part of
2: our A history. Huh? People don't know that. And Bill uh,
1: and then one thing I want to talk about too, time's getting short, and, uh, Sister Ignatia,
2: uh, started, this is Sister Ignatia,
1: she was a Dr. Bob's nurse,
2: and, uh, I mean a nurse
1: that worked with Dr. Bob, with patients, and, uh, they, uh, they were allowing people to sneak into the, uh, St. Thomas Hospital. If you go to Acre, that's one of the stops you make on it. You go there. It's a wonderful thing to see. And a lot of great pictures there. And I was just there recently. And, uh, Sister Ignatia took over the alcoholic ward. To start off, they, they'd sneak alcohol, They'd call it gastritis.
2: And, uh, and if he's
1: drunk, she'd put him in a room. Uh, there's a flower room they had. And uh, that flower, sometimes they have corks, I think, or something like that. But anyway, they had flower, and they, they put a drunk in there, and the flowers and the drunk smell, and all float together. I thought that'd be quite an aroma.
2: <laughs> so I read. And, uh, but they had a five-day program, finally.
1: And the drunk would come in, get detoxed a little bit more. And it's that third day, they do the third day, they'd do the third-step prayer. The fourth day, they they, they, they do an inventory of themselves, stuff like that. The fifth day they're ready to get out and they're supposed to help the next person get sober. Some of our drunk comes in to help dress him and everything else clean the bed and everything. That's the way, that's the way they did back in those days. If, if you got drunk, well, uh, you know, you're not supposed to ever come back again. But she did let some people come back. But if you came back again, like I told you, you were not allowed to mingle with the patients. They give you a special room because you'll, you'll pollute them.
2: You're, you're
1: not that's where they felt. Right or wrong. Uh, we talk about our, our chips of the day, you know, uh our, our chips this is, this is what she gave out a little medallion,
2: uh of, uh capital medallion and
1: uh that was the beginning before we had chip chips or we had mail. This is
2: the beginning of that whole idea. And I think it's kinda of interesting. And uh, uh that was that was that part. Uh
1: History went on. We got more and more people sober in all the different places in Indianapolis. And this is this picture of Jimmy Burwell. This is what I wanted to show you. I, I, I knew I had it somewhere. This is uh, they what might have been our cover, but right? the Campbell guy had that. So they, they, they decided against it. I like the this cover better. And uh, this is some of Jimmy Burwell. That picture of Jimmy Burwell. I probably haven't seen. And he's a guy who to God, as we understand him, to say that.
2: So, as I say,
1: he grew all over the place. And, and the magazines had a lot to do with them. This Liberty magazine, I'm not talking about the history of Indianapolis, Indiana, for a while. Uh, this, uh, this here came out.
2: And... Uh, Actually, it was uh,
1: September of '39, and Dorothy Sharon over in Indianapolis read this, and he wrote to Liberty Magazine, and they told him how to get a hold of the central office in the hawk of New York, and started corresponding them, and eventually Clarence Snyder was head of all the 12-step work on this side of Cleveland,
2: on the on, uh, west of Cleveland. Yeah, and uh, so, uh,
1: he sent said, he said
2: this uh, guy a uh, funny story about this here.
1: No, I guess it's not in this book. Anyway, I can't of the guy's name. A, little, a little, very short, fat guy couldn't stay sober for nothing. And, uh, but he's a good 12-steper. And, uh, Clarence sent him to see Gordy Sheeran, and I told you the story about are you're an alcoholic doctor? Clarence, he started there, and, uh, so, this started AA in Indianapolis. This little guy here, he'd go to Atlanta and all around, the little place, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a Venetian blind salesman, to show anybody can carry the message of alcoholic and non so he finally did get sober in California years later, but, but yet, uh, the fact that somebody's been sober a short time doesn't mean they can't carry the message. That's what I get. You know, you think, well, you you so you got drunk, you know, last year, you're not, you know, you just, you just always carry this wonderful message, exciting thing.
2: And, uh,
1: I could go on talking, but I
2: think, uh, uh, probably somebody said, you said
1: enough. <laughs> and, uh,
2: but, uh,
1: I'm thrilled to be here, and I thank you for allowing me to carry the message. This is my way of carrying the message. In our history lies our hope, don't forget that. And uh, so, when, when you go, go to meetings, try to, try to talk a little bit about the history where you get to something. The history of some particular step or something going on. Get in some real authentic history. And these wonderful books to read. The more you read, the more you'll find you need to read.
2: And it's really exciting.
1: And, uh, so, I've got your addresses here. and hope I can email some of you back and forth. And, uh, so, let me know. And uh, so, God bless, and thank you for allowing me to be here. And i done.